Talk Recorded live. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Awakening Universal Minds. I'm uh, one of your hosts, Brother Beniti Amon Ray, a.k.a. Brother Michael. Uh, also got with me uh, my co-host, Ravana Noon, who will be doing closing commentary with us after the show. Uh, tonight we got a special show for you. We have a special guest for you this evening. Uh, we have author and historian Ralph Ellis with us. Uh, Ralph Ellis has authored many different books, just to name a few. Uh, Jesus, King of Edessa, uh, King Jesus from Cam to Camelot, Cleopatra to Christ, uh, Eden in Egypt, Jesus, Last of the Pharaohs, uh, The Tempest and Exodus, Solomon, Falcon of Sheba, K2 Quest of the Gods, and Thoth, Architect of the Universe, to name a few of the books that he's written. Uh, we're kind of going to jump around tonight and talk about some of his various works. We're probably going to focus a little bit more on the Old Testament and, and some of the correlation to that, but let's just make sure we got Ralph with us. Are you with us, Ralph? Uh, yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Good, good. It, it worked. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know you I know you had problems. I, I know you're calling from overseas. Where, where, where exactly? What country are you in, Ralph? I'm in Spain at present, just for a chance. Okay. Okay, and yeah, just, just to tell you, they, they will be having the, the Skype thing uh, set up soon. I, I checked into it, and then that's the you know the way by loading the app. But anyway, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule uh, for joining us uh, to talk about a lot of a lot of the uh, interesting work and information and books you've put out over the years. Um, but before we begin, if you could tell the listeners just just a brief history about yourself, and can you tell us uh, you know the website where we can purchase your books or where they can go to to purchase a lot of the books that we'll be talking about tonight. Sure, yes. I've been working on these uh, topics for about uh, 30 years now or so. Um, yeah, just uh, began researching and then uh, putting down those notes and they ended up as a book. First one came out in uh, 1997, I think, or 1996, and I've uh, been writing ever since. So, um, yes, it's uh, a bit of a hobby and a bit of a passion. So my Website is the Edfu Books website, so it's www.edfu, E-D-F-U, uh, hyphen books.com. There is also a Facebook page now, which is, um, uh, what's it called? I think it's called Gospel of King Jesus uh, Facebook okay. site. And there's, you know, lots of comment on there and so on. Okay. And um, there are now... Ten books, I think, in the series. So there's quite quite a lot of reading to do. Definitely, definitely. Um, so what we want to kind of uh, start off with discussing, Ralph. Well, what we're basically going to do is we're gonna we're gonna talk with you for the first portion of the show, and then we're gonna take some online questions, and then we'll take some callers in, in reference to the information that we're talking about. Um, but what I kind of want to start out with, um, you bring up a lot of interesting point points when dealing with Old Testament history. Um, obviously. Christianity, the way the way religion is presented on the surface, we know there's a lot more to it. You kind of, um, um, you know, reveal a lot of these mysteries and connected to Egypt. What I wanted to start out first with is the Eden in Egypt. Um, some of the information from that book that you wrote. Um, when you start out, and uh, I believe you mentioned Genesis chapter two, verse ten, where you uh, kind of correlate that river mentioned in that chapter being the Nile River. Can you kind of connect Eden and Egypt and kind of talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, um, I, I don't know why this hadn't actually been written about before and seen before because it seems so obvious to me. 
Um, I didn't start on this topic because I thought looking into Genesis would, would be unproductive. You know, it's, it's so old and so strange that you wouldn't be able to find anything from it. But, um, yeah, um, Genesis, uh, as you say, 2.10, it says that um, a river ran through the garden. And, um, uh, gosh, I don't have the quote here. It comes to the, the garden and then is parted into four branches. Correct. So, so we have a river that runs through uh, a garden of Eden and then is parted into four branches. There is only one river that parts into four branches in that region, and that is the Nile. So right. this has to be an Egyptian story, surely. And, and of course, this comes on the back of all of the work I'd done previously, showing that the, uh, you know, the Israelites were the hyksos from Egypt and so on. And, and of course, right. even in standard... Um, you know, Torah history that the Israelites came out of uh, Egypt. So we, we know there's an, an Egyptian connection somewhere. And then Genesis says that you know, the river ran through the Garden of Eden and then it was parted into four branches. It has to be the Nile. The Nile runs through the uh, garden oasis uh, of the Nile Valley and then it gets to Cairo and it's parted into four branches, which becomes the Nile Delta. So the Garden of Eden has to be connected uh, to Egypt. And of course, I'd already previously connected this with the regime of Akhenaten, Pharaoh Akhenaten. And if you have an Eden in Egypt, well then surely that... Uh, and especially a garden of Eden as well. Um, surely that must be connected with the Aten, which is the, you know the god of Achenaten. Right. Um, so the garden of Eden must be the garden of Aten, the garden Correct. of the god Aten. So it, it just seems so logical and, and obvious, and and all of those connections sort of um, came together. Um, you know, as, as, as soon as I started opening those pages. So it was obvious that there was a, there was a whole book, you know, within the uh, first pages of Genesis. And that's, that's, that became uh, Eden in Egypt, which is it's quite an interesting book, that one. Correct. Um, and, ha okay, having said that, you mentioning Ankenaptim, and, and when you talk about the story of, of Moses and Aaron, and you've made that clear who, who those, in your research, who those characters would be, in ancient Egypt. And speaking of the Exodus story, let's talk a little bit about who actually, in your research and, and the information that you put in your books, um, what did you, who did you come to the conclusion that Moses and Aaron were? And let's talk a little bit about the, 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 the similarities between the story of the Hyksos, you know, coming out of Egypt and the story that's recorded of how we get it interpreted in the modern-day Bible of the Israelites coming out of bondage in Egypt. Can you kind of elaborate on that for a little bit? Yeah, so we're we're part of the same time scale here because um, the, the Adam and Eve story was not the beginning of the world. It's not a creation epic. It was actually the um, hymn to the Arten. Um, so, and the hymn to the Arten is about the dawning of a new day. It's, it's not about the creation of the world. It's about the dawning of a new day. And the hymn to the Artem was 
of course, created by Pharaoh Akhenaten. And the Exodus is a part of that same story. So we're talking about the same era. We're not talking about a different era here. Right. Um, well, actually, let's back up a little bit. There are two Exoduses. So there are two occasions when there was an Exodus out of Egypt. Um, the first of these was a little bit earlier. The first of these was the Hyksos Exodus. So right. if, if we look at the Hyksos Exodus, um, here are a few you know, historical points from the Hyksos Exodus. Um, there was a group of people um, in Egypt called shepherds, and you know, they wore uh, earrings and curly side locks of hair. Yeah. Um, they had a war with the Egyptians. They, uh, there was darkness for three days. Um, and an ash fall, and they started off from Pi Ramesse, and right. there were 500,000 of them, and they went on an exodus to Jerusalem. Right. Well, and that's not being taken from the Torah, that's, that's not uh, biblical, that's from real history, that's the history of the Hyksos Exodus. Yes. So it was quite obvious that the Hyksos Exodus and the Israelite exodus were one and the same. Mm, Um, However, coming back to Akhenaten, um, the Egyptian historian Manitho says that there were two exoduses, not one. So he says there was a major exodus and a smaller exodus. And the smaller exodus was the exodus of the maimed priests and lepers. And it just so happens that his description of the smaller exodus is very, very similar to what we might expect from the exodus of uh, Akhenaten when the Amarna regime collapsed. Um, And so in that case, um, if you look at the connections, uh, Moses and Aaron, the two brothers from the Torah, were actually Akhenaten and his brother Tuthmosis. Mm. So we have the same names. We have Aaron and Moses, and we have Akhenaten and Tuthmosis, who were both you know, two pairs of brothers. Um, and so therefore, Aaron and Moses are from the Amarna regime, that, that they are Akhenaten and his brother. Um, and so this is where we get you know, monotheism from. It, it came from the Aten. Um, and of course, if you look at the Torah, the the God of the Israelites is given several names. Actually, you know, yes. he's called um, uh, Yahweh. He's right. called um, uh, Gosh, I, I forget the other name now. Anyway, one of the other names he has is the Arden. Mm-hmm. So even within the Torah, he has the same name. He's called the Arden. Um, and so it's quite obvious that the Arten and the Arten are the same god. So this is the god of Pharaoh Akhenaten. So it's fairly obvious where most of uh, Judaism came from. It came from Akhenaten and his new monotheistic religion. Correct. So it's an Egyptian story. Correct. Um, and very interesting, and, and I know you bring up, and, and that kind of makes uh, a, a lot of clarification because when one, and I know I've heard you talk about uh, on some of your programs, 
that you have, you know, theologians and, and historians and, you know, the theologians, they don't understand the history. They kind of got the Bible aspect of it down and then vice versa for your, your, your historians or scholars. They don't really understand the Bible, but they got some of the history down. Now, explaining what you just explained would make a lot of sense because um, when one reads the Bible, if you don't know the combination of both, like you said, the history and the Bible, um, you can get confused because showing that there was two exoduses makes, cl- clarifies a lot of things because when you mention Thutmose, it is recorded, like you said, in ancient Egypt, there's a story of him recorded driving a group of individuals um, out of Egypt. So when you connect those two characters, um, you know, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Now, having said that, this is speaking of these same two characters that we're, we're calling um, Thutmose and Ankankatan or Moses and Aaron. You also mentioned, we can elaborate on the, and I found this very interesting, you also elaborate on the connection with Mount Sinai being the pyramids of Giza. This is very interesting. I know my listeners will definitely enjoy this. Um, can you kind of elaborate on the whole Mount Sinai story and, and, and connect that to the pyramids of Giza? Yeah, well, if, if you take this as being an Egyptian story, then this was you know, all part of an exodus out of, out of Egypt, which is, I suppose, pretty much what the Torah says. But then you get to a situation where, where Torah history starts forgetting things. Um, and, you know, Israelite history doesn't forget things. You know, they record everything. There's every name. Uh, there's every location. There's every battle. There's every um, love affair between the people. So how do the Jewish records forget where Mount Sinai was? Correct. It's just not possible. Um, you know, this is their sacred mountain, so how could they forget where it was? Um, and, and they keep pointing at, you know, a place somewhere in, in uh, the Sinai Peninsula when you could not have 500,000 people sitting in the Sinai Peninsula for, for 40 years. It's just not possible. Um, you know, the Sinai Peninsula is, is a, an extension of the Sahara Desert. So where in that case would Mount Sinai be? Well, again, we can just look at the descriptions and, and, and we can see where it is. So, um, you know, Mount Sinai is supposed to be, uh, it's, uh, it's a tall mountain. It's the highest mountain in the region. It's uh, sharp. It's difficult to climb. It has uh, a cave inside it. It's... Um, it's it's a mountain of God, of course. Yeah. Um, and what else? Oh, yes, it has a, um, at the bottom of it, there is a pavement that is um, black and looks like the night sky. So where, you know, anywhere in that region would you find a, a, a mountain that conforms to those descriptions? Well, right. it's quite obvious. The, the mountain is the Great Pyramid. Um, they were coming out of Egypt. And as they were coming out of Egypt, they would have been passing by the Giza Plateau. And if you look at the um, Giza, uh, at the Great Pyramid of Giza, you will find it is, it's the highest mountain. It's the highest mountain in the region, the highest pyramid in the region. It's sharp and difficult to climb. It does have a cave inside it. It is a mountain of God. And 
it does have a pavement at the bottom. So if you if you go to Giza, I don't know if your listeners have been there, but um, on the eastern side um, of the Great Pyramid, that's where the um, causeways are. Um, there is the black basalt pavement, which is um, a large black basalt pavement as dark as the night sky, and it's on the eastern side of the uh, Great Pyramid. So the Great Pyramid conforms to all of the descriptions we have of Mount Sinai. And it makes sense because, you know, where would you have your sacred mountain? Would it be some, you know, jagged peak in the middle of nowhere? Or would it be a sacred mountain, which is exactly what the, the Great Pyramid was? And of course, you know, the Great Pyramid was not a tomb. Um, we have to get away from this idea of pyramids being tombs. Uh, none of the pyramids were tombs of pharaohs. Uh, they were temples. So this was a great temple complex. It wasn't a, um, a tomb complex. Right. Um, much as, you know, if you go to Central America and you look at the Great Pyramids there, you don't necessarily think of them as, as, as tombs. You look at them as temples because that's where the, um, you know, the liturgy of, of their particular religion was performed on the top of those pyramids. And that's right. what they did at the Great Pyramid, because the, the Great Pyramid had a, a set of steps, of course, going up to the top, because the Great Pyramid has a platform on the top, again, very much like the um, Central American pyramids. Right. And so it has this great stairway, which goes to the top, which you know was the stairway to heaven. And that's where the priesthood used to go um, to do their various rituals of their religion. And not only rituals, but also watching the heavens, because that was a part of, of the, a central part, really, of their religion was actually just astronomy, you know, looking at the um, the stars and the constellations and, and watching the procession of the equinox was, was right. one of the central components of their religion. So that's what they were doing. And of course, if, you, if you're going to do that sort of religion, the Great Pyramid, the platform stuck on the, you know, top of the Great Pyramid, 146 meters up in the air, is, is the premier observatory in ancient times. You know? right. um, you'd be above all the um, smoke and mist of the you know, cooking fires down below. You would see you know, the sunrise about five minutes before anyone down below saw the sunrise. And you could survey you know, the whole of northern Egypt, as it were, from, from that position on the top of the Great Pyramid. It was an ideal astronomical uh, center, and that's what it was used for. So, yeah, it, this is all an Egyptian story. And um, why they won't admit it, well, it, it sort of changes the religion completely, doesn't it? If, if you say, oh, we're, we're this completely iconoclastic uh, monotheistic religion you know called Judaism and then you have a Mount Sinai which is the Great Pyramid right. well that, that sort of conflicts with what you're saying somewhat doesn't it you know you've suddenly admitted to an Egyptian heritage and we right. all know that the you know Egyptian religion was not mono, monotheistic and it wasn't iconoclastic um, you've, you've changed the entire structure of your religion so they can't admit to it whether they know it or not they can't admit to it 
They can't right. say that they were Egyptians. Um, right. Because it changes the very fundamentals of, of what they're teaching now today. So right. they have to lie. Um, right. And I, I do wonder sometimes how many of them are just lying and, and how many of them are just you know following the religion. You know, how many actually know what the original tenets of this religion were, but just Correct. cover it up. I don't know. Well, it's funny, it's funny you bring that up, Ralph, because I, I think a lot of people uh, dealing with people that, you know, follow these main monotheistic religions, be it Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you know, I think they, a lot of them are stuck in their comfort zones. And, you know, you, you made a, a statement a few minutes ago. When you go back and research a lot of the Jewish so-called Hebrew records, you, a lot of these so-called stories, the way they're presented today, as you're saying, there's no record of them. Um, like I said, you can't really find the exact pinpoint where Moses so-called received the Ten Commandments. Um, if you could, connecting this to an Egyptian story, um, in ancient Egypt, what, where does that, where did they get that story from, this whole idea that Moses received these tablets with these, with these commandments on it? Um, because that's based, I, I bring that up because um, if you have a, a monotheistic Jew, that's pretty much the foundation or the core of their religion. So where does that story come from, and how does that tie into what we're talking about? Uh, well, again, it's, it's an Egyptian story, and again, it, it came from the Giza pyramids. That was a part of, of this story, because uh, I, I said the central component of their religion was, was astronomy, but a part right. of that religion was to do with sacred stones. These are the sacred omphalos stones, um, which were like, um, how can we say this? They're almost like a, a, a miniature pyramid. So yeah, it's yeah. a small conical stone. And the original stone was a benben stone, which came from, right. from Egypt. And yeah. really, in terms of its uh, its form and its its intent it really is a miniature pyramid because the the, the pyramids were um you know like the uh primeval mound the first mound of order that came out of the chaos within you know egyptian theology correct um, you could think of as as being the great pyramid well they had a miniature one in fact a, two of them i think okay. uh, and these were called the benben stones which became the on um, follow stones of, of Greece. But right. we have the same situation within uh, Judaism as well. So we have the two sacred stones that Moses brought down from the top of Mount Sinai. Right. And, you know, we, we tend to think of these, you know, that, that, that people say that they are tablets, but they were just two stones that were brought down from the top of the Great Pyramid. And these were the Benben stones. The sacred stones which were put in the ark um, so um, where are we going with this so um, yeah the sacred um, most sacred day of the of the Jews is right. Yom Kippur correct and of course Yom Kippur means the day of the stones okay now today it means the Day of Atonement, but but Kippur comes from Kippur, which means which means stone. So originally you could regard this as being the Day of the Stone. So the sacred day was 
was about a stone, and that that has remained the same throughout time. So you know the the the, the primary disciple of Jesus was called Cephas, which Correct. comes from the same word. So uh, Kapoor and Cephas comes from the same word, and uh, you know he was the stone. He was Peter. Correct. That's right. Peter is the stone. So the um, the disciples of Jesus were, were, you know, part of the priesthood, as it were. So this was his priesthood. It was Jesus, and his primary priest was the priest of the stone. Correct. Which was so Peter. Correct. Tell, yeah, that mm-hmm. was Peter. So you can tell from that that the the sacred element, the central element within, you know, the Church of Jesus and James, was again to do with sacred stones. So we have this history of these sacred stones which wander all through um, history, not not just biblical history, but all through normal history as well. Um, we have these stones that went to Greece where they were called the Omphalos stones, uh, mostly from Delphi. But we have these images of these stones going all across the Greek Empire, all the way across to um, to Mesopotamia and, and Babylon and places like that. We have images on, on the coinage from the Eastern Greek Empire of these same Omphala stones. Right. And I, I have lots of images of these in the books because the, the coins are a, quite a good way of, of tracing history because, you know, they're they're fairly indestructible, so we, we find them. And they they had a range of designs that they put on the back of their, their coins, especially the Greek ones. They're very good. And right. a lot of these coins trace the um, history and, and the regions that these sacred stones went to. Um, and so you can follow these sacred stones all around um, history from Greek. So we're, we're talking about um, the uh, Sassanid Empire of of Greece over in uh, Persia. And then we come back again to uh, my story that I put out about um, Jesus and James, the family, the biblical family, who I say were um, based in northern Syria um, Mm. at Edessa. And if you go to Edessa, again, they have the sacred on fuller stones on their coinage. Right. Um, so this coin now has come back again to northern Syria. And in fact, the, the, the coins that I... This is in the book, um, Jesus, uh, King of Edessa. The coins from Edessa are interesting because the, the Omphala stone is actually in the Ark of the Covenant. So we, we have right. coins from Edessa with the Ark of the Covenant on them. Right. And uh, this this is from the second century AD. So um we you know, we're getting into sort of biblical type eras here. Right. Um and then if we go a little further west again and a little bit further in time, we come down to um Emperor Elagabalus, who came again from Syria. He came from uh Homs, I think it was, near Damascus. And he became the Emperor of Rome. Um and he was following in this very same tradition. And his coinage, again, has the sacred Omphala stone. And right. because these are Roman uh, coins, you know, made by the um, 
the Roman mint. They are very, very good coins, so you can see the detail on them. And so at last we can you know, really see some of the detail of this on Follerstone. And again, it's a, you know, a small, conical little stone. Uh, and it's embossed with the image of the phoenix. So it's connected with the phoenix. Correct. And the phoenix, of course, was the... Um, it, the, the phoenix was connected with the processional cycle of, of the sun. Correct. And, and, and the, you know, the constellations. And so we, we come back again to this astrological observation, the same as they were doing in, within Egypt. It's the same old religion. So yeah. we've gone all the way from, from Egypt you know, in, in the centuries BC. We've gone all the way through Greece, across to Persia, back to Syria, down towards um, more southern Syria, Damascus, and then across to Rome. And we're still following the same old coins. That's right. the same old coins, the same old stones. This is stone, right. you know, the, the Omphala stone. Right. And this was the sacred stone that was originally kept um, within the Ark of the Covenant. These were the two stones that Moses brought down from the top of um, the Great Pyramid. These were the two stones that Jacob used as his pillow. You know, the famous story about Jacob and he, his pillow. Um, and he anointed this pillow, which is actually a, uh, a matziba. Um, and a matziba is, is a small pyramid. And that's what it means. And he anointed it with oil. Well, you know, again, this is the same old sacred stone. This is the Omphala stone. So this history of these sacred stones goes all the way through um, the history I'm writing about, you know, of, of the not just the Judaic people, of course, but it goes to Rome. And, and then we have a problem after Rome because we don't know what happened to them after Rome. And I have this sneaking suspicion that they ended up in, in Britain. And so one of the stones at least came to Britain in about um, 3rd century AD. Right. Um, something interesting I want to bring up, you just said, I know you're connected and, and in your book, Jesus, uh, King of Odessa, you talk about it. Uh, in detail, uh, and we're gonna, again, we're going to jump around a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament in a few minutes, but since you bring something mm -hmm. up, um, when speaking of Jesus, there's so many different correlations to Jesus. Now, when, you, when, you're, when you're connecting um, him, when we're dealing with Syria, one thing I find interesting, some of these first Christians, it's even mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 26, that they were first called Christians in Antioch, which is in Syria. So the question, the question that I have, when we're talking about this character, Jesus, um, some, and there's been many historians, uh, researchers, theologians, archaeologists, some have connected this, the Jesus character in the Bible to, to the Egyptian Horus or Heru. Some have connected it to uh, Tammuz in ancient Samaria. There's correlations in your research. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that, that's, that's a hot topic because... Um, a lot of people have their theories on, you know, who Jesus is. Can you talk a little bit about, a little bit more about that in your research? When we're reading the biblical Jesus that we read about, whether it's in the King James Version or any of the modern-day translations that came after it, um, who, are we, who are we to take this Jesus character as? Is this a literal character, or is this a compilation of many different um, people that have lived throughout history? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? 
Yeah, well, well, he was both, of course. He was, he was um, a real character, and he was also a fictional character because that's what these um, these monarchs always did. They always took on the guise of a particular god or a particular uh, event from the past. So, um, yes, he he was Horus because that was his uh, you know official status. That's why you'll see um, all of these. Um, allusions to him being um, the Madonna, Madonna and child. So, you know, the Madonna and child is Isis and Horus. So he takes up the Horus position and, and you know, Mary the Virgin becomes Isis. So that was their honorary position as such. But just because he takes on the guise of Horus does not mean that this is a fictional story about Horus, of course. Right. Um, he was a real person as well. He was a real monarch. And um, finding him in the historical record took me a long time. It's, it's taken me since 1997, I think it was, when I first wrote about this. Obviously, I was researching before then. Right. But the first book came out in 1997, I think, which was Jesus Last of the Pharaohs. Right. Uh, and then I built on that with... Uh, Cleopatra to Christ and then King Jesus and I still haven't fully found him I I, I had found him in, in King Jesus um, but I'd only found him within the books of Josephus and Josephus talks about this this character called Jesus Jesus of Kamala who was the leader of the Jewish revolt um, and this leader of the Jewish revolt happens to be almost identical to what we consider to be the, the Jesus character. And of course, they have the same name, of course. Um, and that was fine. You know, I had, I had found him, as it were, in the historical record. He, he was Jesus of Gamala. But the yeah. trouble is with Jesus of Gamala is he is, you know, fairly fictional himself because he only appears within the works of um, Josephus Flavius oh, and, right. and within the Talmud. So even the Talmud knows about him. So we, we know this guy was a real character. But you can't point to any location. You can't point to any archaeology that says who Jesus of Kamala was. So, you know, we're almost back to square one. Right. So that's when I went looking again because I thought, well, you know, this guy must be in the historical record somewhere, why can't we find him? <laughs> and, the re and the reason why we can't find him is because Josephus has covered him up. Ooh. Deliberately so. Um, and that became apparent because uh, w within his books, this guy has two names. So he's called Jesus uh, of Kamala and he's also called Jesus, King Jesus. Right. Um, and we know that they're the same person because these are both credited by Josephus Flavius um, as being the leader of the Jewish revolt. So, you know, the leader of the Jewish revolt has two names. He's called Jesus or he's called Jesus. And, they, you know, so these two guys have to be the same character. Right. Um, but as I said before, you know, he, he doesn't appear in the historical record. But when I started looking at the um, Armenian records, which I had never looked at before. I didn't know anything about this this particular history. 
And I certainly suddenly noticed that the Armenian records say that the mother of this particular character, King Jesus, was actually married to King Agbarus of Edessa. Wow. And again, I'd never, I didn't even know who, where Edessa was at that time, you know, Edessa, who, what? And, um, you know, King Agbarus, has anyone right. heard of King Agbarus? Well, strangely enough, you know, Joseph Flavius, who's the premier historian of all events within um, the Near East in the first century AD, never mentions Edessa, and he never, ever mentions King Agbarus. Mm. Even though he was very, he was, you know, the most influential monarch, minor monarch, in that region, in that era, was King Agbarus. And he even appears in the uh, Acts of the Apostles, um, where the Acts of the, the Apostles talks about the uh, famine in Judea, Right. A person, it says, who identified that famine and, and assisted in that famine was someone called Agabus. Right. This Agabus from, from the Gospels is King Agbarus. So people knew about him, of course, but Josephus has managed to delete him from the historical record. And he did that for a reason, because this guy treads on the toes of everything that's been written um, about gospel history, about right. biblical history, because right. this was the father of Jesus. So once we have this connection um, between what Josephus is saying and what the Armenian historians are saying, suddenly we can merge these two families. So Josephus has this big story about this family from Adyabani, and nobody right. knows where Adyabani is. You know, it's a mythical place. Um, and I, this is the place I've been hunting for. I've been hunting for Adyabani for about five years. Um, <laughs> but the Armenian historians say that Adyabani was Edessa. So now uh. we have a connection between these locations and we can merge these two royal families yeah. into one because Adyabani turns out to be fictional. Right. Well, not entirely fictional, it is Edessa, but mm. Josephus has changed the name because he didn't want you to know where it was. And by changing the name, he's moved this royal family from Edessa all the way across to somewhere, you know, down in Iraq somewhere. And right. it just so happens that Edessa was called Antioch. Mm. So when right. the New Testament, the, especially, you know, Acts of the Apostles, says that the disciples were in Antioch and this person called Agabus was in Antioch. Ah, okay. Well, it's not talking about Antioch, of course. You know, the one we normally think as Antioch, which is Antakya, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean. Okay. No, it wasn't that one. They were talking about Antioch Edessa. And Antioch Edessa is across the Euphrates. That was the capital city of this particular monarchy. And the monarch um, in the first century from Edessa, well, the elder monarch was Agbarus, this man we've already talked about, and his son was King Jesus. 
And even more than that, his son was called King Jesus Manu. Right. And of course, Jesus from the Gospels was called King Jesus Emmanuel. They have the same name. (laughs) So here he is. We've found him in the historical record. He actually exists. And as I said before, he's been deleted from history because Josephus never mentions this guy. Right. He never mentions Agbaras. He never mentions Edessa. They've been wiped from history. So unless you can join up the dots, unless you realize, you know, if, if it wasn't for the um, Armenian historians, we would never know this. That's right. The only reason we know this is, is because the Armenians were scribbling things in Armenia that were not allowed to be scribbled within the Roman Empire. Within the Roman Empire, you were not allowed to mention Edessa. Right. Which is why nobody does. Not not even the um, uh, Roman historians. Correct. You know, the, the proper Roman, Roman Roman historians yes. don't mention it either. And, and <laughs> certainly Josephus doesn't. So if, if we were just going on the Western Roman Empire for our history, we would know nothing about the place. That's right. It was only because the Armenians were cut off from Christian history uh, by the Council of Chalcedon, which was the big split between the Eastern and the Western Christian Church. The Eastern Church got split off and was completely separate from the Roman Catholic Christian um, Empire, which became the Byzantine Empire. And so Rome had no control over what the Armenians were writing. Right. And of course, they wrote the same history, but from their perspective and with their their spin on the story, which was an Armenian spin, it wasn't a Roman spin. And so they wanted to highlight this history a little bit more because they considered these guys to be Armenian because, you know, he's on their patch. You know, Odessa is effectively in Armenia. So they were more proud about these, these people living in Odessa. They actually classed him as a king of, of, of Armenia. Right. And so they wrote about him because, you know, everybody wants to write about their kings. Yeah. And in this manner, only because of this, that the history of, of these kings was preserved. Right. Uh, otherwise, as I say, we, we would have lost it completely. Correct. So, yeah, that's, that was the basis of that uh, last book I wrote, which was uh, Jesus, King of Odessa, which is um, quite an interesting story, that one. Now, definitely. A lot, a lot of information. And again, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to author and historian Ralph Ellis. Um, we're discussing a variety of his books. If you like what you're hearing and you'd like to purchase uh, Ralph Ellis's books, you can go to his websites. I'm sorry, his website, edfu-books.com. Um, all the books we're discussing are available on his website for purchase. Um, nice amount of books and a lot of thorough information. Uh, we're going to take some calls and questions in about 10, 15 minutes. I see, I see everybody on the call. I see people on the, on the chat. So you can start you know, getting your questions typed in if you're online. I see some people just listening online. And again, when I take your call, I just see you by state, because if you don't register, all I see is a state, so I will call you out by state. And we do have people online from the same state, but you will be the only one heard. And obviously, if you registered, I, I have a name. I will cue you in on the call on a name. 
Um, so for we're going to talk with uh, Mr. Ralph Ellis for a few more minutes before we do that. Um, just to follow up on what you just said, Ralph, um, speaking of, and you've talked about this, and, and again, we're going to jump around a little bit. Um, with the, the New Testament, I know you, you spoke about Josephus. Now, a lot of historians have said, in their opinion, in their research, he had a large influence in authoring what we know as the New Testament today. You talk about the Christianity that people follow today is more so the Christianity of Paul as opposed to when we trace it to the origin or the traditions originally of these cultures and religions. Now, for an example, when we look around the world today, you kind of dispelled the myth on the whole Jesus story because um, people have started wars over these religions. Many people have died. Blood has been shed. And to this day, as we speak, obviously there's still wars going on in these so-called holy lands because people have the misinterpretation of these stories. Um, speaking of modern-day Christianity, um, the whole way that it's presented today with Jesus being God, you know, some some believe in the Trinity and, and break that whole concept down and accept that. Um, and there's, there's wars and debates, debates over these theological opinions on many of these faith belief systems and mainly Christianity. Can you elaborate on the difference when you say in your book um, what's considered in your research to be Paul or, you know, the Apostle Paul's Christianity as opposed to the original or, or more ancient Christianity that we can tie into this character we're talking about, Jesus? Yes, of course. Well, even within the New Testament that is there as you read it, if, if you read it critically, um, it's obvious that... Um, uh, Jesus had nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. Um, although most Christians won't realize that, but, you know, Jesus was, was not a Christian, of course. Right. Um, so in, in the first century era, we had, you know, four major religions in Judea. We had the um, uh, Pharisees, we had the Sadducees, we had the uh, Essenes down on the um, shores of the Dead Sea there at Qumran. And then we had the fourth sect of Judaism. And the fourth sect of Judaism was Nazarene Judaism, right. which was the church of Jesus and James. Of course, Jesus was the Nazarene. That's what it says. Um, Correct. Nazareth didn't exist in that era. So he, he was not from Nazareth. That was just a cover story. Mm. Um, he was a Nazarene. And of course, if you read Acts, um, Saul was said to be the Nazarene. In fact, he was said to be of the Nazarene sect. That's what it says. So it was identifying the Nazarene as a, as a sect of Judaism, Correct. which it was. And this is Nazarene uh, Ebionites, who were a slightly more esoteric form of, of Jude, Judaism. Um, and this was the church of Jesus and James. They were Nazarene. Um, and then, of course, we have Saul, who I link with Josephus. So I normally call him Saul, Saul Josephus. Mm, um, okay. And maybe I need to talk about that in a minute. Anyway, not for the minute. We'll, we'll carry on. Yeah. And he created a, another sect. So these guys were sent off on, on their evangelical tours across the Mediterranean. Um, to evangelize about 
Nazarene Judaism. So when, when Saul was sent off across the Mediterranean to uh, Greece and um, Anatolia, he was actually preaching Nazarene Judaism. But when okay. he did so, he found there was a lot of resistance. But he also found there was a lot of Greeks who were interested in this story. Right. And he was fi- finding more supporters within the Gentile Greeks than he was you know, within Jewish populations around the Eastern Mediterranean. And so he went back to James after the first tour and said, look, you know, can I preach to these guys? Right. And for whatever reason, maybe just to humor the guy, I don't know, because Saul was only very young at this stage. This is one of the major alterations I make to New Testament history because I've linked him with... Um, with Josephus. Um, on his first tour, Saul was only 15 years old. He was, he was the youngster. He was the, um, he, he was like the Mormon preacher. You know, they send out these Mormon preachers across Europe who go knocking on doors all across Europe. Right. Um, they're, they're all youngsters, you know. Nowadays, they would be 17, 18 years old. But in those days, of course, you were a man at 14. So a Jew becomes a man at 14 years old. And so at 15 years old, Saul was, you know, like the Mormon preachers going out across Europe, he was going on his evangelical mission, you know, across the Eastern Mediterranean. So this young Saul goes back to James and says, look, can I preach to these Gentiles because they're interested? And James said yes. And so he gave the five tenets of what became Christianity. So I call it simple Judaism because it wasn't Christianity at that time, of course. It was, was not fully fledged. Right. And, and these, was it five or four tenets? Anyway, um, the, it was really simple. It was um, uh, don't eat or drink blood, which is one of the central tenets of Judaism, of course. Um, don't get involved in immorality. Don't eat strangled animals. And that was about it. There was, there was five, I think, um, central uh, rules that he made. And that was it. That, that was new, simple Judaism for Gentiles. Right. But the whole of the book of Leviticus had just gone out the window. The whole of standard <laughs> Judaism that... That's right that even Jesus would have been preaching as, as a Nazarene Jew had just gone out of the window and, and Saul was left with five rules. That was it. And so when he went off on his second mission across uh, the Mediterranean, this is what he was preaching. So he right. was now preaching this simple Judaism for Gentiles, which is why he says, I became the, um, pre- the, the, the high priest of the Gentiles. And so we have this division between the two churches. We have right. Jesus and James, who were still preaching, obviously, Nazarene Judaism, which was a uh, initiatory type of religion. It was a Masonic style. You had to be initiated into the secrets of Nazarene Judaism. Correct. And then you have Saul Joseph's religion, which was... Come and join us, you know, anyone. Oh, you know, as long as you 
stick a couple of shekels in the collecting plate, you're in. Correct. And this is what James had not bargained on because it became very popular because anyone could join um, simple Judaism and you didn't have to be circumcised, which a lot of people, of course, wouldn't in that era wouldn't want to become circumcised, especially if you're preaching to adults and not children. Correct. Um, You didn't have to conform to all of Judaic law. You didn't have to conform to all of the Judaic uh, dietary prohibitions and everything else within Judaism. You could join straight away. That's right. And they did. And so, much to James's horror, it became a bigger church than the original Nazarene Judaism. Right. And so Saul became very important very very quickly, and this generated this huge rift between these two churches, with with Saul becoming very very powerful within his young years. You know, um, by uh, you know the AD sixties in in AD sixty, he would have been twenty three years old. He was still a youngster, and he was in charge of a quite an influential um, new church. Um, and then he gets sent to Rome, and he gets uh, he gets into some trouble in Rome. Oh no, sorry. Before that, he gets thrown into prison, doesn't he? He gets thrown into prison by the um, Roman governors of, of Judea, and he, he's in prison apparently for seven years. So between AD 55 and AD uh, 62, um, Saul Josephus was languishing in prison, um, mostly charged with teaching um, doctrines which were against Judaism. Correct. And then he got sent to Rome. And it was in Rome that I think, this was in AD 62, that he became a Roman quizling. So he, he turned to Rome, and, and now he was acting as a Roman spy, effectively. So right. whatever he was doing in, in Judea after that time, because he came back to Judea in AD 65, whatever he was doing in Judea, he was doing it on the behalf of Rome. So we now have a double split here. We not only have a split in the religion between Nazarene Judaism and, and simple Judaism. We were split in the leaders um, being obviously Judaic, Jesus and James, and Saul Josephus, who is now quite firmly a Roman right. and, and backing the Roman point of view. And this was the major split between these two religions. And of course, Christianity came out of simple Judaism. That's right. It did didn't come out of um, Nazarene Judaism. And so anyone who is following Christianity is following the religion of Jesus' enemy. That's right. So as I say in the books, you know, if, if you're following Christianity, it's rather like reading a biography of Winston Churchill that was right. written by Hitler. That Correct. Is, that, that is the major fallacy, you know, if you're following standard Christianity, because you're following the religion of Jesus' enemy. And so you're looking at Jesus through the eyes of Jesus' enemy. 
Correct. And, of course, he was going to portray the guy in a completely different fashion, and his religion in a completely different fashion as well. Right. And, so, and this is, you know, the split between Judaism, and, and Judaism as we have it now, of course, was not Nazarene Judaism. That's right. Jesus was not a Nazarene Jew. That's why, you know, he overturned the, um, the, the, the tables of the moneylenders in the temple and ended animal sacrifice. Um, you know, if you look at modern Judaism now, you don't see sheep and oxen being taken up to the temples, the, the synagogues, to be slaughtered. Correct. That has all changed. Um, and, and that mainly changed because the Nazarenes would not slaughter animals. They, would, um, they had incense instead. And so that major change in Judaism, you know, all, all of the Jews going to synagogue now, they sort of, you know, whistle softly and, and completely forget that they're supposed to be sacrificing animals. And they don't do it. Correct. And Nazarene Jews did not, and neither did um, Josephus. Josephus was also against animal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And who was in charge of Judaism after the Jewish revolt? It was Josephus. Right. The last man standing after the Jewish revolt, because the whole of Judea was completely destroyed, and the whole of the administration of Judea was completely destroyed. The last man standing was Josephus. Right. Saul, Joseph, Saul Josephus, because he was working for the Romans. And so, of course, the Romans put him in charge. And so all of what we now class as Judaism nowadays was hugely affected by animal sacrifice was stopped. And it was stopped in exactly that time. We know that they were sacrificing animals up until AD 60 because the Talmud tells us so. Correct. And then after that, it suddenly stops because Josephus didn't want it. So the, the guy who's affected these religions, and therefore not only these religions, but the whole of Western religion as well, um, to the greatest degree, and had the greatest control over over what we believe uh, even today, is Saul Josephus. Because he had his his fingers in the the pie of Christianity by creating Christianity as we know it through simple Judaism. Um, He affected Western secular ideas, because he's the guy who wrote Jewish War and Antiquities, so he wrote all the mm-hmm. secular books right. uh, about this region and era, and he is the guy who was in, co- in control of Judea and set Judaism on its new path, so he also affected Judaism as well. Right. So he affected all of the religions and all of the history that came out of that particular region. And so he has to be the the sort of most influential guy of the last 2,000 years. Right. And very interesting you say that. Um, So this kind of explains uh, this last question I'm asking. I'm going to go to the phones and take some questions for you. Um, This would explain the, the, like you say, the separations of what we know as these modern-day religions because, like you say, uh, you know, modern-day Christianity, uh, when you read the teachings of Paul, was a very simplified version of Judaism. They did away with a lot of the, 
you know, the sacrificial aspects uh, of the 613 commandments that they have in the Torah. That was kind of pretty much abolished, and they used this crucifixion story, and that's the key because that's, this is the foundation of a modern-day Christian religion because they'll use that and say, by the crucifixion, that was the ultimate sacrifice, and that kind of rid uh, individuals of being under the law. But yet there's contradiction in that because Jesus said he came to, you know, not to destroy the law but to fulfill it according to Matthew 5.17. So the question that I have here when speaking of this character, Paul, we also know the history of the Nicene Council and a lot of these councils that came together and kind of made decisions of the modern-day Bibles we hold in our hands determining which books they would, you know, put in. We know they apocrypha, some accept it, some don't. Uh, most people um, that are, you know, believe in monotheistic religions basically accept the 66 books presented in the King James Version. Um, so the question is, when dealing with this character, Paul, the only thing, and when you read his story, that can validate his so-called call to apostleship, if you want to call it that, is, you know, he claims he had a vision on the road to Damascus. Um, this is the only thing really validating his call, you know, so-called to to our prophethood. Was this something that was inserted in there by himself? Is this is this was this a factual incident that happened to him, um, or is this a, this just a personal experience that he recorded in there? What what is that story about? Um, well, it's, it's it's about him surrendering to the Romans. So uh, let, let's back up a little bit and and ask who who Saul is because. Again, he's another of these characters, like all of the characters in the, the whole of the Bible, who right. is missing from the historical record. Right. How do we keep missing all of these influential guys? <laughs> and so that was the first question I asked when I started this, you know, back in the 90s. Who right. It's Saul. How can you lose Saul from the historical record? Never mind Jesus. I mean, that's bad enough that you've lost Jesus from the historical record. Right. How can you lose Saul when Saul was the guy who created Christianity? Um, Correct. And again, I went through the life stories, and there is another character in first century history who has the same life story as Saul, mm. and that is Joseph of Flavius. Right. And the, the giveaway that they are the same person is they were on the same shipwreck going to Rome. And so in, in AD 62, um, Saul was sent, he had been in prison for seven years, and he was sent to Rome to go and see Nero. Well, Josephus was on that same ship, and on that same shipwreck. There was a major shipwreck. They got shipwrecked on um, Malta. Uh, before being taken to Naples and then on to Rome to uh, see Nero. And Josephus has exactly the same story of the same shipwrecks. Gotcha. And so if you look at the lives of these two guys, they are identical. Mm. Um, and so I have said that, you know, th and this was way back in 97, 96 or something. Right. So I said that um, uh, Saul was Josephus. And mm. I got all these complaints after that book I wrote um, back then saying, no, it's not possible, not possible at all, because the dates don't match. You know? They're completely separate dates. Josephus wasn't um, born until AD 37. Yeah, okay, well, I know that, etc. And So I had to go back and research it again, which I did for the book King Jesus. And 
it doesn't matter that he wasn't born until AD 37, because as I said, all it does is it makes him a bit younger on his first um, tour of, of the Mediterranean. Right. So his first tour of the Mediterranean was in AD 52, roughly. And so he would be 15. So all you have to do is say that, okay, this guy wasn't the leader of this particular expedition. He was the junior. And he right. was going off under the, gu- under the wing of um, uh, Barnabas. Yeah, Barnabas was his, his companion on that, that first tour. Right. So he was the junior under the control of Barnabas. And, and if you read the stories, that's what it says. Barnabas is, is Venus, and poor old um, Saul Josephus is little Mercury. Why? Because he's the junior, and he was just 15 years old. So this makes a, uh, a big difference to the story, uh, because we now know who Saul was in the historical record. Um, and he was he was Josephus, and uh, he was he was very much the youngster on the, on these first tours of the Mediterranean. Um, and what was um, what was the original part of this question? What were we looking at? Well, we were, like you say, you were connecting. So basically, what we're saying is this: this Saul character to to establish his validity. I think he established that you basically these are the, these two individuals are the same person. Both stories, as you're explaining, Saul and Flavius are the same, same character. That yes, but that your, your original question, I, I forgot the original, oh, the original question. question yeah. The original question was the 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 story that, and I'm I'm speaking from the Bible story now. The story as recorded in Acts that establishes because this is what Christians will use to establish the validity of Paul being the apostle or the messenger that came oh, yes. after Jesus. His flash of inspiration, yeah, that's what we yeah. Okay, so when we come back to the flash of inspiration, it's essential that we know who this guy is, otherwise you can't interpret what is being said about him. Correct. So now we know that Saul is Josephus, we can look at the history of Josephus to see what he really meant. And of course, Josephus has a flash of inspiration. Okay, in that's exactly the same fashion. But of course, he wasn't on the road to Damascus. He was stuck in uh, Jotapata. Okay. Um, and his flash of inspiration um, was not to join Jesus. His flash of inspiration was to join the Romans. Okay. Same story, but a, a, a different emphasis. So, if we take these two guys as being the same character, his Life story is exactly the same, but there is a different emphasis. So he was um, initially of the Church of Jesus and James, but only a side character because he wasn't fully committed. No one trusted this guy. Um, uh, he, He was not a central character within their religion. He had been rejected effectively. Okay. And within Josephus, um, he then becomes the opposition leader. Right. So this is during the run-up to the um, uh, Jewish revolt in the uh, mid, mid uh, to late 1860s. Okay. And there are two characters. Um, this is in secular history. This is not the Bible. Uh, right. There are two characters within Judea who are battling out across uh, Galilee. Uh, one is 
Josephus, Saul Josephus, because he was made the army commander in charge of Galilee, um, working for the Orthodox Judaism um, uh, authorities down in Jerusalem. And then the other guy was Jesus, Jesus of Gamala. And he was the Nazarene who was, he was the rebel leader um, working for the rebels. And so we have this situation in, in Galilee in, in the 1860s where Saul Josephus was battling Jesus in Galilee. And of course, within the Gospels, we have Saul battling Jesus within Galilee. You know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Correct. Um, right. It's the same story. Mm. And so this is the conflict between um, Josephus and, and the rebel leaders uh, and the rebel Nazarenes who were led by Jesus and James. They were on opposite sides, not only of a religious dispute, but of a military dispute as well. Um, mm. Because Jesus was the leader of the Jewish revolt. He was the leader of the rebels, which sort of comes across within the New Testament. You know, Jesus is a rebel leader. It's just you tend to think of him as a rebel leader with you know twelve disciples and just sort of you know, just preaching across Judea. You don't really think of this rebel leader as actually leading an army um, and being fully armed. But of course they were armed because Jesus sent the disciples out to go and buy swords, as it says. Right. So going back to the flash of inspiration, we have this battle between these two people. And then the Romans arrive in Judea to put down this rebellion. And um, Saul Josephus is, is one of the Judean commanders in charge of Galilee. And now he's faced with not only the rebels he doesn't like, he's faced with the Romans as well. And he's got to make a choice. You know, who, who's he going to back? And he couldn't really suddenly just join with the Romans because his own people would would kill him, as it says in in the works of Josephus. So he battles with the Romans initially uh, until he's cornered in in Jotapata. And there is the great siege of Jotapata. And then he has his flash of inspiration. And his flash of inspiration is to go and join the Romans. Right which he probably was with the Romans anyway, because I think he was um, uh, a Roman spy even before that. But anyway, at that point, he has his flash of inspiration and he joins the Romans. So it is the same story. It's just, it's been, it's been changed a little um, because Saul doesn't want to, within the gospel story, he doesn't want to ally himself too strongly with the Romans. Because right. it's still supposed to be, it's still still supposed to be a you know a Christian Christio Jewish story. It's not supposed to be Roman. Right. But um, so they've changed the emphasis a little bit, but it is still the same story. Okay. And, and that's how we can actually decipher the whole of the New Testament because once right. we know who these characters are and what they were doing at this time, then the you know, the gospel story starts to make sense. All of the events that happen within the New Testament happen within um, the first century Judea. 
But note that the era has changed a little bit as well. Um, right. Josephus was was battling Jesus in Galilee in AD 65. So we're talking 35, 40 years later here. All of these events happened 40 years later. Right. Um, and, and that was another part of their, their covering up of what happened. So they, they had this story. It was the story of the Jewish revolt. But when the Romans wanted to write this story, and of course it was Saul Josephus who wrote it, he was the last man standing, they didn't want a story with this new simple Judaism that, that Josephus had been promoting. They didn't want this story to be about a revolt against Rome. I mean, that was the last thing they wanted. What Rome wanted was to you know, stop all these revolts on the eastern um, borders of the Roman Empire. In fact, to stop all revolts you know, across the whole of uh, the Roman Empire. And so the last thing that Rome wanted was a story about a revolt against Rome. That's just simply not allowed. So they had to divorce this story from the Jewish revolt. And they did. And they did that by taking the story back into AD 30 and saying it happened at that time. Okay. And that's why we have this story about the, um, you know, the gospel story in the AD 30s, because they readjusted the chronology to suit Rome, so it wouldn't be um, affected by the Jewish revolt. Okay. And this has has totally distorted all of first century um, history because anything that has to link up with biblical type history has to be bent and warped by 40 years to, to fit in with what the, the Christian history says. And so it's messed up the entire chronology of, of first century Judea. So we have these wonderful situations like we get in Arthurian legend, which I'm working on pre uh, at present. My new book is going to be on King Arthur. Um, and we have this, and, and strangely enough, King Arthur, a lot of the story in King Arthur is all about um, Joseph of, of Arimathea. Right. So it's actually first century material. It's not about you know King Arthur at all. So a lot of what they're writing is is biblical type history. Right. And but then they have a problem because because of this um, I call it a chronological chasm that has been created by Saul Josephus and the Romans. Right. And so they have this guy Joseph of Arimathea. And the funny thing is, is that he was a colleague of Emperor Vespasian. Now that gives a bit of a problem, really, because Joseph of Arimathea was supposed to have taken Jesus down from the cross in AD 30. Correct. So That's how right. can he be a colleague of, of Vespasian in AD 70? We, we've <coughs> suddenly got this chronological dislocation again. So what, what the um, Arthurian legend does to get around this problem is it makes Josephus go to sleep for 40 years, and when he wakes up, he thinks only three days has passed. So now Correct. they can get their character from the 80s, 30s into the 80s, 70s to continue the story. Yeah, yeah. And those are the problems that this, this distortion of, of first century history has created. 
and it was all created by by Saul Josephus. So right. yeah, it's um, interesting little story. Very interesting. Uh, that uh, shed a lot of clarification on that. I think it's important, you know, like you say, for you know, you got to do the work and the research and put connect the dots and and put this information together so it makes sense. Because you had a lot of people today, and you know, unfortunately, modern day religion. Um, Literally, just literally taking it for what it is because they don't have a full understanding of what's going on here. All right, we're going to take, before we let you go around, we're going to take some calls and some questions for you in this next portion for the next 20 or 30 minutes uh, before we let you go. Again, you're listening to Ralph Ellis. Um, we're going to go to the phones first, and then we'll rotate from the phones to online questions. So let's go to the phone. I got my brother, uh, Saar from Tampa, on the phone. What's going on, brother? Are you there, Saar? Please. What's going on? You're on the phone with Ralph Ellis. If you have a question, go ahead, bro. Please. Uh, I had a question. Like, what was Akhenaten bringing as far as, like, what was his purpose? Do you have any information on that? What was his purpose? Yeah. Um, yeah, this, this goes back to the original religion of Egypt and what it was all about. So the religion of, of Jesus and James and going back through um, David and Solomon and all of these people, there was an original religion that lay behind what we know these religions are today. And that original religion was based upon the procession of the equinox. And so this was the, you know, the slow wobble of the earth, which causes the constellations to move around the night sky. And so you get a different constellation every 2,140 years. And these are called the great months. And a part of the original religion was noting and observing these changes in the heavens above. That's why most of these religions were astronomical or astrological, I suppose you could call it. And this was a part of what Akhenaten's religion would have been about. But we know there was something deeper there because Akhenaten took on a very, very strange form. And so if you look at any of the sculptural or artistry from the Amarna era, you will see that Akhenaten and his family are portrayed as being distorted. So they have elongated heads, they have almond shaped eyes, they have, you know, wide, wide bust, very, very narrow hips and no genitals. So we have this distorted imagery of the Amana family. Mm-hmm. And you've got to imagine that this is this is quite revolutionary. I mean, if if you imagine the, a ruler today, say you know Queen Elizabeth II um, of of, in, of of Britain, um, can you imagine her being portrayed by the royal artists with a big elongated head and huge almond-shaped eyes? Um, you wouldn't do it, would you? There is no monarch in the modern era would would do such a thing. Uh, and we know he didn't look like that because there are busts of, of him and his family that are perfectly normal. So we know he, he didn't look like that. This is, you know, an artistic fashion. 
Um, so what was he doing? Well, it's, it's quite obvious that he was actually betraying himself in the image of the gods <clears throat> understood them. So this was what the gods were supposed to look like. They were supposed to look like um, humanoid characters with elongated heads. And this is why when you go around ancient uh, sites all across you know, Central America and, um, and, and many, many places around the world, you will see these mummies and, and, uh, and skeletons of people with elongated heads, especially mm. across Central America where you get the, you know, the big cone heads. Right. Um, they, were, they were part of one of those films, weren't they? Um, one of those um, uh, Indiana Jones um, films had, had these elongated heads. Um, and Akhenaten was exactly the same. And not only was he portrayed like that, but his daughters and um, his wife were also portrayed in the same fashion. That's right. And Tutankhamun was slightly a cone head as well. He had had some head binding, and, and uh, so he had a slightly, um, a slightly cone head. Not, not, not to the degree you get them in South America, where you have these enormous great cone heads, uh, you know, real skulls of people. But his skull is slightly elongated as well, so he had been uh, had his head bound as well. So we have two aspects of this religion. We have, we have um, an astrological component, which is um, counting off the millennia. So we have um, a way of checking our history and checking you know, where, where various monarchs belong within that history. And also we have an image of the gods. So we have an image of what the ancients thought that the gods looked like. So to the ancients, the gods were humanoid. Um, right. This is before you know, Jewish iconoclasm got rid of all of the images of the, of the gods, but the original god um, was humanoid, which is probably why it says in the book of Genesis that man was made in the image of God, because you know, if, if God was supposed to be a humanoid that looks you know, pretty much the same as we do, then yes, we were made in the image of, of the gods. Um, and so that was a part, uh, a, a fairly central part of the original religion of, of Akhenaten. Okay. Any other questions, uh, Asar, for, for Ralph Ellis? Oh, no, thanks. I appreciate it. I appreciate your question, okay. brother. Stay on. We're going to do the closing. Uh, we're going to go online now. And again, uh, Ralph, I'm going to read these just as they're typed into me. So this is me reading it to you. Um, the question from online is, it is my understanding that Trinity was inserted into the Bible, and I believe that's in, in the first letter of John, chapter 5, verse 7, by the Romans. Is there really a Trinity? If so, where does this concept originate from? There were many interpretations of this, this Trinity. The, 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 the main Trinity that we get within um, the, the, the centuries AD and, and, and BC is the trinity of, of the stellar gods. So we, the main one we get is the sun and the moon. Correct. And the sun and the moon need a messenger to come down to, to 
you know, people on, on earth and actually uh, say what the gods require. And so we have the sun and the moon and the, the, um, the messenger of the gods. And this was one of the major trinities we have within, within the first uh, century, you know, the centuries either side of the uh, first century. Um, but the original Egyptian one was slightly different in a way. Um, okay. The original Egyptian one would have been um, and that is a pattern that's obviously continued within Christianity as well. And that is probably one of the original trinities um, from ancient times. So it's, it's merely Osiris and Isis. Right. And their son, son Horus, which became the Madonna and child, of course. Right. So, so again, another, another concept that they, they pretty much took from Egypt and grafted into the Bible, but kind of, you know, distorted yeah. it. Absolutely. For, for, uh, in, in a way, the, the first century one is probably very much the same. Um, you know, you could identify Osiris with the sun. Correct. And identify Isis with the moon, of course, because that's what she was identified with. And then right. all you need to do is, is say that Horus is not only the sun of, of these two uh, stellar bodies, but he is the um, semi-design uh, messenger. So he's not just their son, he's the earthly king. And, right. and this is why we get this idea that you know, Jesus was, was semi-divine, um, a son of the gods as well as a, a son of a royal family. Um, right. Because Horus was, was both, if he was the messenger from the gods. Right. Makes sense. All right, let's go back to the phone. We're going to take another call. Uh, Northwest New York, you are on the call. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you're on the call. You're on the call. You got Ralph Alice oh. and Well, actually, I was just listening, so you know, I don't have any questions. I'm just actually, you know, listening to what, what you were talking about. All right. No problem. Appreciate you listening. Okay. Thank you. All right. All right. Let's go back online. We've got a couple more questions for you online, and again, we'll try to get to most of them. We're not going to be able to get to all of them. We'll try our best. Uh, next question. Um, that's typed in as, as uh, says, uh, Mr. Ellis, you are saying what you are saying in relation to Jesus and Paul uh, kind of makes Christianity a grave contradiction. Uh, would that be the correct, correct, correct way to perceive this? Well, it's a distortion. I'm not sure if it's, well, the, the, there are various contradictions within Christianity, but it's, it's a gross distortion of the original religion, that's for sure. Uh, as we were just looking at the the original religion was uh, was Egyptian. It was polytheistic. Um, there were plenty of icons. There was no bans on on, on making icons. Um, we then had the the Jewish distortion of that, which started the monotheism and we and started the iconoclasm. Um, and that was done in a way uh, because of some of the problems that polytheism had caused. And so Moses saw that the best way of overcoming some of those problems, and, and of course the main problem was you know, the, the worship of the bull. He was trying to end the worship of, of the, uh, the golden calf, which was the Apis bull. One of the ways of doing that, of course, was 
to make a monotheistic religion because that would get rid of this old worship of, of the bull. So they started introducing monotheism. And then we have a further distortion when we get down to the first century when the resulting Christian religion was mainly composed by Rome because it was Rome that was dictating what Saul Josephus could write because he was the puppet of Emperor Vespasian and it was Emperor Vespasian that was calling the shots. And what Vespasian wanted in this new religion is a new form of Judaism that was Rome-friendly. So he didn't really care how ancient this religion was or how true it was to its original roots. What he wanted was a religion that was Rome-friendly. And that's why we have this great distortion of the original religion um, within uh, Christianity. So Christianity gets rid of you know, the Zodiac, which was a central component of even original Judaism, but certainly uh, Nazarene Judaism. One of the central components of their religion was, was the Zodiac. And we know that because if you look at the ancient synagogues in Judea, they all have a Zodiac on the floor. And I have several images of these Zodiacs in, in my books, especially in uh, Cleopatra to Christ. Um, and all of that went out of the window, of course, that they, is no longer a part of simple Judaism, which became Christianity. And so they lost all of these original stellar um, cosmic and astrological components of the original religion. It all was thrown out. And so, yes, there's been many, many distortions down the ages to this particular religion. And so if you want to find the original religion, you have to look at the more esoteric areas, areas of um, modern belief, uh, not at the Catholic Christian Church, which doesn't have any of it really left. So you have Correct. to look back into Egypt. You have to look back into um, Mithra, which I'm doing at present, which was a part of the original religion, uh, and look at these original synagogues in, in Judea, which are all zodiacs, but they're processional zodiacs. So again, we know that the the Jews in that era, and these would be Nazarene Jews, I imagine, not, not um, Orthodox Jews, were looking at procession again, the procession of the equinox and the changing of the constellations over the eras. Um, yeah, so yeah, Christianity has distorted a, a lot of, you know, the original religion. Okay, appreciate that. We're gonna go back to the phone. I'm gonna bring in um, uh, Rabana Noon. Any questions or comment, brother Rabana Noon? You there, brother? Rabana Noon, can you hear me? Okay, we got. No connection there. All right, we'll go back online. We'll always rotate. Uh, next question for you, Mr. Ellis, is from your book. Uh, it says here from Solomon, Falcon of Sheba, you talk about um, King David and King Solomon not being found on the historical record. Can you elaborate a little more on who actually uh, King Solomon and King David were? Yeah. Um, again, we come to one of these interesting aspects um, of. Um, 
Judaic history where they've they, they've lost their characters. Um, so we have you know two very famous characters from from the Torah, and again they are missing from the historical record. And you have to wonder why Judaism has managed to miss so many of their uh, famous historical characters. Um, and again, I had to do the same sort of thing I did with uh, first century history um, to go and search for these particular characters because um, Jerusalem in, in the 10th century BC uh, did not exist. Um, so, you know, we have this story about David and Solomon, which was, you know, supposed to be the most powerful and wealthy monarchs in the, in the era. And uh, monarchs came from uh, all over the region to pay tribute to them. And yet Jerusalem did not exist as a major city in that era. So the only alternative is, is to go either looking in a different era to the 10th century or to go looking in a different location. And it seems that the latter is, is, is the correct option. So this monarchy did exist, the united monarchy of, of uh, David and Solomon, but it didn't exist within Jerusalem. So uh, Jerusalem was called um, Zion, and they, the capital city of the united monarchy was not in Zion, it was in Zoan, which in Judaism has the same spelling. And Zoan was not Jerusalem, it was Tanis in Egypt. And so the United Monarchy was actually based in Tanis in Egypt. And that changes the story. And again, you can see why they wouldn't want to admit to this, because it changes the story quite considerably. Um, it makes it more Egyptian again, of course, because the, the Tanis Monarchy uh, were not just in a, uh, living in a different city, but they were substantially Egyptian. And their religion was sort of substantially Egyptian as well. Um, but in a way, this is what we get. If, if you look at um, you know, Kings and Chronicles, the, the Judaism of David and Solomon was not the Judaism we see now within uh, classical Orthodox uh, Judaism. Uh, King David and Solomon were, were making temples to many gods, not just Yahweh. And they had they had sacred groves, they had um, maypoles, they had phallic symbols, they had all sorts of things um, within the United Monarchy, which would not be classified as as being Judaic today. And so, if we go to um, Tanis we can find the whole of the United Monarchy there, including David and Solomon. And I think this is actually one of the most interesting of the books I've written. This is, um, you know, uh, it, it was called Solomon, Falcon of Sheba, but it's now called Solomon, uh, Pharaoh of Egypt, because it identifies these characters in the historical record, and they still exist, because this was Egypt, and, uh, you know, we have a lot of archaeology from Egypt. And the whole of the Tanis Empire was the tombs of the Tanis Empire were relatively untouched. Right. And it just so happens that the, the David character and the Solomon character both survived 
the millennia and, and we still have their tombs, their sarcophagi, and we still have their mummies. And they're in the um, Egyptian museum at present. And um, they're, they're actually some of the best um, sarcophagi and artifacts from, from ancient Egypt are the Tanis monarchy. Um, so yes, they were the wealthiest people in that era, in that region, except that they weren't based in Jerusalem as, as you know, the Torah makes out. They were based in Tanis. And we still have all of their artifacts, their sarcophagi and their mummies, even today. And uh, yeah, as I said, they, they are the equivalent of the Tutankhamun finds. Um, it's just they're not so famous. So when you go to the um, Egyptian Museum in, in Cairo, you will find hordes of tourists you know, around the Tutankhamun section. And you wander down the corridor and there's not a single person. It's, it's a sort of little alcove on the side. And you'll find there's not a single person within the Tanis section. And yet the artifacts from the Tanis finds are probably better than from the Tutankhamun finds. So right. it's quite a, it's, it's worthwhile if, if you're you know in in Cairo going to see it because not many people do. Right, I appreciate that. Uh, so the next question we have for you, uh, Ralph, is when reading the um, biblical story of so-called Moses and uh, Pharaoh Ramses II. This person says that uh, in doing the research, the time frames wouldn't match up because they teach in modern-day religion that Pharaoh Ramses II was the so-called Pharaoh that Moses was talking to in that story. So who really was the Pharaoh? Who did the Pharaoh represent in that Moses story? Uh, good question. Um, we, we come back again to the problem that there were two exoduses. So right. um, we, we have a conflated story. So they, they took these two exoduses. We have the major Hyksos exodus and we have the smaller Akhenaten exodus. And they merged this story together um, in, into one exodus. And so initially it's talking about Armosi I as being the pharaoh of Egypt. Okay. But then when we, we, when we start getting into the exodus story and you know, the Israelites are complaining about Pharaoh and they're going to meet Pharaoh and, and, and Pharaoh is telling them to make bricks. Whether they've got straw or no straw, they must make bricks anyway. Right. This despotic Pharaoh is their own leader. This is Akhenaten himself. This is Moses and Akhenaten himself. So what this is an account of is the Israelites complaining about their own leader? Because what what happened with this um, particular monarchy? Well, they were kicked out of um, northern Egypt and southern Egypt, and they had to establish a new capital city at Amarna. And so, all of these people were exiles already by that stage. The, the people who became the Israelites. And they had to establish a new capital city at Amarna. And the only way they could do that was by making mud bricks. Because they had to carve out a complete new um, capital city 
because there was nothing there whatsoever. It was a, a, a barren uh, plain on the side of uh, the Nile. And so, yes, you, you have this leader character who's Akhenaten, who's Aaron, and, and his brother Moses, who's Tuth Moses. And they are lashing the whip at their own people to go and make more mud bricks because they want a new capital city and they want this new capital city to be the, you know, the greatest capital city within within Egypt. Right. And so, yeah, this is their own followers complaining about their own pharaoh. Um, <laughs> so when you know when Moses is complaining to Pharaoh, he's complaining to his own brother. This is Tuth Moses complaining to. Akhenaten, who's um, Aram. Um, right. So yes, it's it's a correct story. It's the true story. Okay. All right. We're going to take one more question for you, Ralph. You. The, yeah, we're expecting the pharaoh to be some despot, you know, completely separated from these people. But right. of course, right. there are many leaders down down through the ages who have not exactly been appreciated by their own people. Right, and if if you want these people, and there were supposed to be only eighty thousand of them, so there wasn't that many of these people really to create a whole new capital city. Someone needed to lash the whip, and, and that was that was Aaron, that was Akhenaten. Okay, and, and and we sort of know this is true because um, we have this story about. Um, uh, the Israelites not being ha- able to have um, uh, male children. So we have this story about the, the, the two midwives who kill all the male children. And so the Israelites can only have female children, little girls. Right. And of course, if we look into the historical record, Akhenaten only had little girls. Why? Because the Bible, as the you know the Torah says, the midwives were killing all of the uh, little male children, and, and so again, you know, the biblical story accords with real history, and this may well have happened because, of course, Akhenaten was the heretic pharaoh, right? And there were many people within Egypt who did not want him as the pharaoh, and they didn't want his regime to succeed. And one of the ways you could do that was to prevent him have any, having any male children. Right. So if you bribed the midwives, which is entirely possible, to kill all the male children, then you're wiping out his, um, his dynasty. And that is effectively what happened because he never had any male children. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it, it, it's real history again. So all of this biblical history is real history. Okay. All right, last question we're going to ask you, uh, Ralph, before we let you go. Uh, this question is typed in. It says, uh, you talk, doesn't make reference to the book, but I'm sure you'll know which book it's talking about. Uh, you mentioned Abraham being a pharaoh of Egypt, and you reference him to Pharaoh Nico, king of Egypt. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, this is going back into the... Um, ancient side of, of Egyptian history. And um, the history is a bit more fragmentary, both within the um, biblical accounts and also within the historical accounts. So we're not quite so sure um, about this side of the um, 
the, the history. But if you trace the ancestors, um, the biblical patriarchs, the ancestors of, of uh, Moses and Aaron, and you compare them with the Hyksos pharaohs, not the normal pharaohs, but the Hyksos, because uh, Egypt was divided at this time, so we're looking mainly at the Hyksos dynasties. You will find that most of the characters, the patriarchs of Egypt, um, have, have equivalents within Egyptian history. So there is uh, a Pharaoh Jacob, for instance, Pharaoh Yakaba, who is one of the um, architects of, of the first exodus. Um, and again, this is not really highlighted within history because they, they try to separate off real history from biblical history as though, you know, as though biblical history has no connection whatsoever with real history. And yet there was a pharaoh called Jacob. In fact, there were two pharaohs called Jacob. Right. And so if, if we know that, we can start matching biblical, biblical history with real history. And we can work back all the way through these uh, patriarchs of, of the um, Israelites until we come to uh, Abraham. And actually, it's, it's not really... Um, is it Necho? I can't remember off the top of my head. But the, the main name... Um, because all of the pharaohs had two names, of course. It might be Necho and Abraham together. Um, the main name that matches with Abraham is Pharaoh Mamebra. And of course, if we reverse the the two hieroglyphs, instead of getting Mamebra, we get Abramam. Right. And we also have this um, very similar change in the pronunciation because Abraham had two names of course he was called Abram initially correct and his name was changed to Abraham correct well we get the same problem with this particular pharaoh because this particular pharaoh um, because the hieroglyphs are the same there are two ways of pronouncing his name so he's either Mabra and, and some of the historical works call him Mabra, or he's called Mamabra, right. depending on how you pronounce these hieroglyphs. So we have exactly the same um, pronunciation problem with the pharaoh as, as we do with Abraham himself. So right. uh, and looking down through this genealogy of, of these different pharaohs, um, it does look like, no, even more than look like, it is the same genealogy. So we have the full geneal genealogy of, of the uh, biblical patriarchs within the Hyksos pharaohs of ancient Egypt, going all the way back to Abraham. Um, so we can see again where this story has come from, because if you follow that line down, the Hyksos line, you come to the Exodus. Correct. Of course, the Hyksos Exodus is the same as the Israelite exodus. So we not only have this genealogy, which is the same, but the end result is the same as well. It ends in the exodus. Um, and so everything sort of matches up. The, the, there's not one thing within the entire Torah and New Testament 
that cannot be matched up with the historical record. And the interesting thing about this um, matching with the historical record is that the the Bible, in a way, becomes historically correct. So rather than as it is at present, it's totally separated from uh, real history. It's uh, as I say sometimes, it's as if the Torah was written on Mars because it has no connection with, with real history on Earth whatsoever. Yeah. Well, suddenly it is actually a true representation of real history, if you know how to interpret it. But right. it's the real history mainly of Egypt. Um, so it's an Egyptian story, and it follows the line of the pharaohs of Egypt, the Hyksos pharaohs of Egypt, and all of their trials, tribulations, exiles, and you know, re-establishing themselves back in Egypt, just as Joseph did, and all that sort of business. It all happened in the historical record. Right. So we we end up with a book that becomes a history book, as much as it is um, uh, a religious spiritual book, um, which which is interesting because it's a new view of ancient history. We have this ancient history that we have made through looking at you know, various artifacts and archaeological finds and a few scrolls here and there. But this is a completely separate view, uh, you know, a, a literary view that's come down through the millennia via the Israelites. And it's a view of history that can enhance what we know about the historical record. So it's, it's quite interesting. Okay. Appreciate that, Mr. Alice. All right, we're going to stop there. And, I, and again, I appreciate you joining us. I know there's a great time difference there in Spain. I believe it's like 5 o'clock in the morning there. So I know this was kind of... Yeah. So I know this was kind of a little, little bit rough for you to do. And, and, and again, we, we greatly appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule and doing this at off time due to the great time difference. Um, I know we covered a lot. Uh, I know we jumped around. I was trying to, you know, get into a lot of your work. And I know people have, uh, you know, had a lot of questions. So that's why we kind of jumped around. Um, but before you go again, if you can give people your website, where they can purchase your work. One last yeah, time. Yeah, sure. It's... Um uh, the the website is edfu books that's e d u e d f u hyphen books dot com um, and all of the books are on there. The website is um, Gospel of King Jesus. Uh, that's a Facebook website, and uh, all of the books are in um, uh, Kindle and uh, Apple format as well. Uh, so you can go on Amazon. And they're also now out, there's new editions out. So if you're on Amazon, try and look for the one that says new 2015 edition because that's the latest edition. There's been a, quite a few updates to okay. books in recent times. So they're all on Amazon, they're all on Apple. And, okay. uh, yeah, it's uh, an interesting read. Ten books, there's quite a lot of work to get through. It is a very, very interesting material. And again, uh, you know, we definitely would love to have you back on. I'll definitely check with you down the road, maybe get you back on in a month or so if, if your schedule permits. Uh, we'd definitely love to have you back on and continue this conversation because I know we just, uh, again, there's a lot more to discuss, uh, but at least now people kind of got a, a, a round view of uh, what we're dealing with here. So, again, thank you for joining us, and, and I'll definitely be in contact. And, and again, appreciate your time. You have a, have a great morning, I should say. <laughs> 
Yep. And thank you for having me on. And uh, good good evening to all your listeners as well. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mr. Ellis. Good night. All right, everybody. That was Mr. Ralph Ellis. We, we appreciate Mr. Ellis coming on, uh, spending time with us. Um, I will bring my two brothers in in a minute. We'll do some closing uh, commentary. Just just make some quick announcements. Um, I just want to make sure I got my brothers with me. Uh, Rabana, you there? And Brother Saw, you there? Yes, we're here. All right. Uh, well, before we before we do the closing portion of our show, um, just a couple a couple of updates on the schedule. Just for the next two weeks, due to uh, scheduling conflicts, we're gonna just the next two weeks the shows will be on different days only. So I just want to make that announcement. Uh, obviously, you'll get an email and you'll get a notification because usually I send out text and emails and I post it on. Uh, you know, on Google, and I see that some people are from YouTube and Google listening to. Um, the show will be, next week's show will be Wednesday at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Next Wednesday, 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we're going to have Vera Courtney on. Um, this is a young sister. Um, she's new. She just wrote her first book. Um, you can get it on Amazon. If you just Google, it's called Unmasking the Magicians. Uh, very young sister, very intelligent, bright. Um, I definitely want people to come out and, and, and tune in for this and support her. And um, it's good to see young people now coming up, you know, and, and, and taking the information and, and, you know, and running with it now because we need, I personally think we need more more female role models slash figures for the young women. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of that lacking. So that show, again, will be, that's May 6th, Wednesday at 10 p.m., uh, the following week after that, we're going to be doing the show on Friday, and I believe I believe that's the 15th. I'm pretty sure that's the 15th, yeah. Uh, me and my brothers will be doing that show. We won't have any guests on that, that, that day. That's just going to be uh, an open show where we'll, we'll pick a topic and, you know, we'll, we'll talk and build on it and we'll take questions and uh, things of that, that nature. So that will be on the 15th. Um, what we will start doing occasionally is incorporating not every Sunday, um, because we have a lot more guests that want to come on the show. We will occasionally be throwing in an early Sunday evening show once in a while. Um, I'll give early notice for it. Um, we're going to have Dr. Delbert Blair, who's been wanting to come back on the show. I just haven't been able to fit him in, but uh spoke with him yesterday, and he wants to come on Sunday, May 31st at 8 p.m. So we're going we're gonna to have a special show with him, a special Sunday night show, on uh, Sunday, May 31st at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Dr. Delbert Blair. We want to get him back on here because um, he talked about some, some in-depth stuff last time he was on. Um, and then don't forget, May 21st, uh, Dr. Jewel Pukram will be here. She'll be here to spend a couple hours with us. Um, and I know a lot of people are familiar with her. And just Google her. You can YouTube her. She's got her own website. Uh, she gets She's kind of along the lines of Dr. Edward Bruce Bynum. She gets high heavy into the uh, metaphysical and the psychological aspect of things. So that will be on May uh, May 21st. Uh, Dr. David Emotep will be back on May 28th. And then on June 4th, Brother Panic will return, and we're going to do a whole show on hip-hop culture, the origin of it. And uh, myself and my two brothers and Brother Panic, we're going we're gonna to bring that thing up until today. And we're going to dispel a lot of the myth and garbage because, you know, the big thing on the Internet and YouTube, uh, people want to believe that all these rappers and, 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 and stuff and entertainers are in the Illuminati and all that crap. We're going to dispel the myth and all that um, and get heavy into that. Um, so that's what's upcoming. Um, but, again, if, you, if you're if on the list, 
the invite list. You get the emails. I will send notifications out on the time changes. And like I said, occasionally here and there, we maybe once a month or so, we might throw in an extra Sunday evening show uh, just so we can get some of these guests back on. It's tough trying to get everybody on, and we're only doing it once a week. Um, but we got a lot of we got a lot of good guests upcoming and, and some other people we're working on getting on right now that want to come on the show because, believe it or not, um, some of the guests that we're getting on, they're telling other people about the show, and, and, and it's, it's starting to grow. So anyway, having said that, let's uh, – Finish up when we bring my brothers in. Uh, you know, we'll just do some closing here. I mean, we don't have to just talk about what Ralph Ellis talked about, but I want to get their their feedback. So, uh, Brother Vonneman, what'd you think about uh, some of the stuff Ralph was uh, talking about? I and mean, then maybe we could take it to a more of a metaphysical level. Well, uh, to be honest, uh, it's a lot of stuff we've heard before and a lot of information that. Um, he he helped explain some things for people that are probably still needing that. Um, the whole Jesus concept and the whole Judaism and how it ties into Jesus that was uh, very informational for those who, you know, still need to basically understand that concept within their mind. Right. But outside of that, I mean, it was two shows, just, you know, a lot of information process before hearing it in a different perspective was pretty good. Correct. And then and, and that's the key. And the key, you know, some of the guests we'll bring on, they'll deal more with history. They'll deal more with religion. And the objective is to come to the conclusion that none of that stuff is real. Um because how it's been perpetrated, it's it it just doesn't make sense. Now what we our objective is is just as Ravana knows that we want you to hear it and see it and experience it. And get and get a various multitude of perspectives, because at the end of the day, it, it there's, there's, a, there's a more of a detailed meaning to it. It goes back to Egypt um, when you look at it from a historical aspect. Um, but the main purpose of of going through that um, is again to to show you that it's all made up. It, it, again, it really holds no clout, no weight at the end of the day, and people continue to waste their time over arguing over nonsense in these Bibles, in these Qurans, and, and getting into heated debates and fights and, and starting world wars and all the types of garbage, when in reality you just heard a lot of, uh, you know, history uh, from obviously from Ralph Ellis's perspective and his research that he's done, and, and some of it definitely you can you can trace back and research, and you'll find it dispels a lot of that that uh, religious or, or biblical myths that, that so many people, unfortunately, not per se us, but so many people are stuck under to this very day as we speak because, man, you can get into a highly intelligent, not, not with everybody, but you can get into a highly intelligent conversation. We could be going on a metaphysical level. We can be going on a, a magic or an occult level. There's always that one bonehead that wants to revert back to religion and the Bible because people don't realize how, how, st- how that's stamped on their subconscious mind. And they can't get out of it. Another thing you want to throw in there, and I always talk to my brothers about this, you know, you can see that when you when you talk about a lot of this information, the one thing that I notice, um, you know, is funny. Well, I want to say funny, but connects, even though some of them might have variants of how they present it, because we've had several people on the show. We've heard many different, like when we had Scott Allen Roberts on, he talked about similar things uh but he had a little bit of a different perspective. But one thing is certain, and the point that we're trying to drive home, 
they still all connect it back to Egypt. It's that simple. Um, so that's the point that we want we want people to to see when we're dealing with the historical aspect of it. Now it goes it goes much deeper than that. Well, because once we leave the history, you know, then we then we got to start working on ourselves. We got to start dealing with you know who and what we are and and where we fit into the whole scheme of things. Because one thing you know I'm against is you know getting stuck in that history. And unfortunately, people get stuck in that history. Um, and then, you know, you stop spiritually growing. Um, so I don't know what your take on that. Um, let's bring in Brother Sargidi, uh if you want to give a little commentary. Uh, go ahead, Brother. Peace. Um, I thought the show was pretty good, especially, like I said, how he connected everything back to his origin, which was Egypt. You know, um, especially, you know, how he, you know, revealed pretty much that, you know, the Moses character, the mythological Moses character was nothing but Ankenantan and Ankenantan's life. You know, and uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. And I think that's I think that's very informing, especially to people who believe that Moses was a real person. Right. So you just you just you just renewed your application for AEO, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, I had to throw that in. I'm sorry, brother. <laughs> but um, you know, at, at, you know, at the end of the day, when dealing with ourselves now, okay, when 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 where we are in the scheme of things. Now again, when we deal with the metaphysical, obviously we're all we're all beyond that. Um, but unfor- again, unfortunately, there's some people. Just to clarify the history. Now, when we when we talk about Egypt, as much as we like to throw Egypt out there, now we when we get into really the archetypes of Egypt and the deities, what they represented, and when we get into the magical aspect, that that takes on a whole another a whole another perspective, and it, it opens the doorways to whole other levels. Now, why I say that is because if we have all these people connecting everything to Egypt. Now we need to study the essence and origin of what Egypt really represented and what these characters, whatever, whatever term you want to use, deities, um, what they represent. We, we, we have to understand or take the time out to learn that. I don't think a lot of us do that because, unfortunately, some people get caught up in the, in the historical aspect of it. Uh, but anyway, in closing, um, bring my brother Ron and in one last time. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add before we uh, go ahead and leave. Just uh, the same old comment. Do your work, people. Do your work. As we can see from the state of America, the state of society, the situation in Baltimore, uh, do your work because you, you'll either be manipulated, controlled, or you'll uh, control yourself and master yourself. As we can see, many are being manipulated, emotional, give in, make irrational statements, irrational acts. By no means am I saying you shouldn't stand up for yourself. If somebody disrespects you, I'm not all about turning the other cheek. If somebody disrespects you, you got a right to stand up for yourself. The universe is fine with you when you're disrespected or threatened, and you will stand for yourself and take take back your uh, your right. But at the same time, you see many are just followers. They're followers, and they listen to what people tell them. 
easily manipulated, easily controlled, emotionally distraught, and they run and they end up hurting themselves. And now you're in a situation where your life is bleak because of an irrational behavior. So keep doing the work because the only work that's really, really going to get you there is really dealing with programming and reprogramming your subconscious mind. And real quick, brother, you brought up the Baltimore thing. Something, something interesting that I want to pass on. Um, I'm speaking with Dr. Blair yesterday. He knows a brother from Baltimore, uh, a brother he's known for a long time. And I thought I'd pass this on to everybody, and and totally slipped my mind until you just mentioned Baltimore. Um, this is a brother he's known for many years. I called him and told him, and I'm bringing this up because you just mentioned the people being manipulated. Uh, controlled and not really knowing what's going on. And we always talk about on this show, you know, be proactive, not reactive. And here's a classic proof that you can't trust anything you see on the news and, and whatever they're throwing on the news, they're definitely trying to get a reaction out of you. Now, this brother called him up and told Dr. Blair that this is what really started the riots. And this has not been reported on any news channel. They won't report it because they have to make it look like that it was the people of Baltimore who, for the most part, are black or African-American, were the ones responsible for starting the riot. But here's what really happened. Uh, they started a march, from, and this brother was in the march, and this is a brother speaking from actually physically being there. They started the march three months right by uh, Camden Yards, where the Baltimore Orioles played baseball. Right when they got downtown, and this was a peaceful march and demonstration up until the point they got downtown, there was a bunch of patrons in the bars right across the street that line outside of Camden Yards. These people started uh, making racial slurs and throwing bottles and stuff at the, at the people that were marching and protesting. That's what sparked the riots. Now, you're not going to hear that on the news because – they want to make it look like, again, it's black people burning down their own neighborhoods, which they still did that, which is stupid, because my thing is, and I'm not, I'm not encouraging anybody to go out there and riot, but if you're going to destroy shit, don't destroy your own shit. I mean, go somewhere where you're going to hurt them. You're not hurting nobody by destroying your own shit. But the point I wanted to pass on is that's what sparked the riot. That was not reported on any news network. That was not mentioned anywhere. It was made to look like that the people that started the peaceful protest turned it into violent. Um, and that's a key thing to know, again, and this is why we always say on this show, when you're an alchemist, you're a, you're a master metaphysicist, you want to call yourself a god, whatever you want to call yourself is, that's why we've always said don't be reactive. Because, see, the average fool would go by all those news reports and react off a of raw emotion based on what they were saying on the news. So now you're hearing what was the original starting point of those riots. It wasn't the people. It was those racist individuals that were sitting in that bar across from Camden Yards that sparked the violence, and then that actually triggered it, obviously, throughout downtown. So I wanted to throw that in there. Um, I don't know if anybody else heard anything in, in relation to that, but that was the real deal that sparked these riots, and that changes things now because now when you know that piece of information, that makes more sense because there always has to be uh, nobody. When you're pushed, you're going to only be pushed for for a certain reason. Now they're saying that this 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 uh, boy's spinal injury, Freddie Gray, uh, what they're claiming now is 
Um, obviously, I think it's bullshit. Now they're using this story that there was a prisoner who was in, in the truck with him, and supposedly was they were separated by a metal partition, and he can confirm that he was trying to hurt himself in the van. Now, his injuries were picked up. Now they're saying because he suffered injuries, his, his, his uh, neck was snapped. They've confirmed that through the autopsy. Um, so now, uh, I guess, go ahead, brother. What's funny is that uh, all of a sudden, miraculously, this prisoner comes out of nowhere to say this. It's exactly. <laughs> it, it, exactly. And the autopsy confirmed he, his neck was snapped. So now I want them to, to factually prove. So you're saying he was smashing his head on the metal partition and snapped his own neck, and they still have not confirmed why there was a mysterious stop before they got to the, to the, to the uh, prison to book him. So, you know, again, you've got to be careful how you put this into perspective because, as we say on this show, you're either part of the experiment or you're controlling the experiment, but they're trying to get people, they're trying to definitely control people's emotions. And this is no way, shape, fashion, or form a coincidence that month after month there's a police. We just had the, the well, what, a couple of weeks ago, was the uh, dude in Carolina, South Carolina. You know, now you got to start asking yourself, and, I, you know, I ain't into no spooky shit, and people that know me know that. I don't like to get into the conspiracy theory. But now we got to start really looking at maybe some of this shit is being staged now because I find this too, it's too hard to believe that every three to four weeks there's one of these incidences. And don't sell me the shit that, yeah, see, it's the true nature of the white man and all this. There's something not right with this shit. You got to look at a bigger picture, okay? I'm not looking just at the race factor because that's too obvious. I find it hard to believe that somebody, from what it's looking like to me, is trying to get a reaction out of us. Somebody that looks like to me is staging these events to get a reaction out of us. Now, the question you need to ask yourself, what reaction are they trying to get out of you? Because I find this shit too coincidental that every couple of weeks there's some racial shooting involving the police. And you cannot play the race card. And then now here we go, the same old shit. You're going to have uh, uh, fucking, what's his name? What's the fucking dude's name that lost all? Al Sharpton, who's about weighs about fucking 50 pounds now, who looks like he's sick and dying. You're going to have all these coons now coming in. It's the same thing. I don't know if anybody's seen it, but it's the same story. Over and over, and then here comes Rainbow Push Coalition. Here comes all the coons and the and and all these other idiots. Here's here's something else that's interesting. Nineteen two, April twenty eighth, I believe it was. To May second, Rodney King riots occurred the same exact date that this was set off. Hmm. I didn't. I didn't even pay attention to that. Yep. It's fucked up. What you think of what you think about that, Asar? You you about to pick it on the streets of Tampa right now? That's it, man. I mean, it's definitely a program, brother. I mean it's it's too fucking obvious and something going on, man. And it's like I mean when you look at the whole situation, it's like they're always looking for some type of reaction out of niggas. And and pretty much. Niggas give them those reactions that they look mm-hmm. for. You know, you can... real quick, real quick before you finish, here's the fucked up part about it. Now, when you look at the news, especially in New York, where they were protesting and rioting, 
right? Somebody's projecting image because there's a lot of white folks out there. This is what I'm trying to get people to see. There's not, you got to look past the bigger picture. Somebody's setting something up, some illusion that they're trying to sell. If you go pull up the footage today on the news and even the past ones, even with Eric Garner, uh, St. Louis, I can't attest to too much because I didn't see too much of that footage. But now at first, when it started, when you go back to the to the boy that got shot in St. Louis, and now you take it up to, you know, nowadays, in these last couple of riots, somebody intentionally is making sure images of white folks out there protesting. I mean, I saw, I saw news today where they were hauling white folks away. They had garbage ties around their arms. They had their legs tied up. They were putting them in paddy wagons. Police was attacking them. Okay, I wanted to point that out before you finish because I'm saying when you look at the puppeteer pulling the strings, you understand? And if you're a master magician, you got to look at the big picture of this. Somebody's projecting an image. But go ahead, brother. I want to throw that in there before you finish. Oh, yeah. And all, all I was saying, you know, yeah, it's, pretty much a, it's pretty much a program, a setup, because... I mean, this is. I think this has been happening since. I mean, it's been happening for a long time. That's right. They they will kill, an you know a a melanated person or whatever, and there's a cause an uproar. And the first thing we do is what march and riot. That's right, brother. Got to march. <laughs> and what what's pretty what's pretty much the um. What's the reason why we march? We march because what we're doing, we're starting to, we're begging for them not to take our lives. Pretty much. I mean, I mean, you can't get no more pitiful than that. But, I mean, it's just, it's a constant cycle of the same stuff. And today, today in 2015, we should see the program for what it is. You know, Understand as the when the brother panic that we we interviewed some weeks ago, he talked about the subconscious mind and the three ways that you program the subconscious mind is what symbolism, right. repetition, and trauma. Trauma is one of the things they are constantly using on us to program right. our subconscious minds over and over again with the same fear and bullshit that they've been sticking in it for a long time. Right. That's all I'm say for now. No, and that's a and that's an excellent point because you said trauma. Now, you know what this is like when look at the whole scenario. The marching isn't doing nothing. Because obviously this keeps happening again. If we gauge the last year year to two years, year and a half to two years, this is an ongoing occurrence every couple of months. Now, here, here's the point. If you've seen that movie <laughs> uh, years back, a couple years back, uh, what's his name? The dude, Bill Murray, Groundhog's Day, where he goes to sleep, he wakes up, and every day the same thing keeps happening. That's the shit that's going on now, and they are programming us with the trauma because we see the march. Like I said, the marching is not doing nothing, so that's what I'm saying. You can go out there and stand behind Al Chitlin, Sharpton, and, and uh, old Kunta Kinte, Jesse Jackson, and all those coons. And, 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 you know, and support a fucking organization anyway that's controlled by the Jews and want to pretend like you're part of some black organization, which always makes my ass laugh. 
Um, if you want to get out there and do the chicken coon dance, go ahead and do it. But that's exactly what they want you to do. You know, they want the reaction out of you, and they want you to sit and promote their agenda. So when we look at this shit over and over, it is trauma. So somebody's making you relive that Groundhog's Day every single fucking day because they're trying to work on the subconscious, and that's why I'm glad you brought that up. They're trying to work on the subconscious mind. So now the, and now, now the question is, what is, what is the solution? Okay? Now, if you know what we deal with on this show, okay, if you know what we deal with on this show, we try to come up with legitimate, practical solutions. And that's why we deal with alchemy. That's why we deal with the higher sciences, because if we left all that shit alone and started to look within and work with ourselves, we would set up a certain energy about ourselves. I don't want to get spooked, but we would set up a certain level of protection where we would control the forces of nature or the elements through magic, through ritual, as, as rather than be exposed by them. That's the difference. That's right. So that's what we remember back to Haiti. It, this is actually documented proof that uh, uh, Toussaint, Toussaint, the uh, revolutionary leader of Haiti, he actually used voodoo on Napoleon and his soldiers, so much so that Napoleon was fearful of it, and he left that area. So at one time, we knew the power of using the subconscious mind and using these natural forces to work on our behalf. However, after that time, unfortunately, we started turning and using it on each other. And That's right. Each other through this method, which then re- actually takes to a higher vibrations of what could be and lowers the vibrations to lower forces. And this is why it's not as powerful as it once was. So this is actually proven that we've done these things before, and so if you can keep a people in a physical state by marching and protesting, they will never tap into their spiritual state, their mental state, to create a new energy matrix so that these events don't even have to take place. We would take care of things already on a higher level, which would eventually manifest on a physical level. But that's, that's, too, that's too spiritual for some people, Mike. That, that, that's just too spiritual, y'all. <laughs> and then, and that's the whole point. And people keep, and I'm glad you brought that up. And 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 Haiti's a great example of that the Haitian people had a great opportunity at one point. Uh, but like you say, the lower vibrations have destroyed that whole spirituality aspect of it. But and that's the key. And this is what we've been saying. And that was the purpose of of, of doing the show and reaching people and teaching people. That's what that's what the truth. Well, that's what the reality of, of what's going to give us the solution to this problem is that inner alchemy, that inner magic, that connection with our ancestors, working that, you know, and again, we discussed that, I believe, also a few weeks back with Brother Panic when we were talking about, you know, ritual magic when you do it in a group setting and your own personal magic is two different things. So we got to learn first the self-imposed magic we need to do to connect ourselves spiritually to our ancestors. Now, I know we talk, we've talked about uh, different brahmas, different types of meditations one can do. Uh, we talked about the science of perfecting the kundalini. We talked about self-healing techniques. We talked about um, 
hiring your spiritual vibration. Now, one thing I think went under people's, or I shouldn't say under people's head, over people's head, because if it was under their head, it would be in their brain. But one thing I think went over people's head when Dr. Bynum last week was talking about consciousness and how it connects to the space-time continuum. Now, that's an interesting aspect of his book because that would, that would define within you the infinite or infinite principle. It would just, if you have to meditate and focus on that for a minute, which means we have access to all the spiritual and magical forces in the universe that we can utilize at our disposal. Like you said, if you get the correct teacher that can give you the guidance, and doesn't now, again, want to stress, and he made it clear, a teacher that can start you off and guide you, but eventually you get to the point where you are your master teacher. I want to stress that because I'm not, I don't want to pass that on as you need to come up under somebody and be a slave to them. That's not what he meant. He said he meant when you're first starting out, all right? I want to stress that. Some of us might be a little more experienced where we're past the teacher factor, where we're on that road and already doing these things. But if, this is, again, geared if you're kind of just starting out on that path, get a good guide that can point you in the right direction so you can go on that path. But this is the solution. It would alleviate all this bullshit that people get sucked into with all the stuff on the news. And that's why I say when people say, hey, it only affects you, again, if you're part of the experiment. But let me go to the phone. we got somebody that wants to chime in on the phone. I'm going to bring in a uh, sister from uh, Northwest New York. Go ahead. You're on the phone. Uh, hey, this is uh, Celine from New York. No, I agree uh, totally with what your brothers is talking about because um, we do need to get into uh, – understanding the alchemy and the magic behind everything. And I'm starting to understand and see a lot of things, too. Uh, and noticing how they're trying to, like you said, create their agenda and make it happen. Now, just like they did all these movies out here, not people realizing that these movies were events that they want to take place in their future. And, you know, now they want to make the Death Star so that they can take it to the center of the universe the great black hole or the triple mother or whatever. But, you know, they're coming up with all kinds of things that they've already had put in place, meaning that they wrote it down because alchemy is in each letter. So when you write it down, you make it come alive. So when you speak it, you make it come alive. So like like you were saying, yes, trauma, that's alchemy right there. So, yeah, they're feeding uh, you that trauma so you continuously loop, loop with that trauma. Yeah, you're going to become what they want you to become because they want it to come alive. That's right. Yeah, you're right. And we have to understand as, I mean, everybody as a whole has to understand that, you. yeah, alchemy is important. Yes, we, we do have uh, initial powers, but you have to know how to bring them out and use them when it's time. Tell it, like I said, everybody uh, is telepathically connected anyway through DNA. Uh, right. When you touch somebody, you're, you're actually telepathically communicating with them. Yourself, right. the kundalini, right. all of that, all of that is wholeness, and it is... Um, that's where you get all your power from. And if you don't know, a lot of people don't know how to use it. That's why the Russians or the, the Germans, excuse me, uh, the Nazis created uh, psychiatrists because they knew that they had to suppress the power of telepathic communication. They had to suppress that. And when people start, I hear voices and I communicate, you know, uh uh-uh, uh, no, you're crazy. No, you're not crazy. They right. fucking getting ready to suppress your ass, so That's you right. don't come into power. 
You're not crazy. They get ready right. to lock you down. That's right. Definitely. All right. Appreciate that. Uh, All right. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. One last thing, brother. One last thing. Um, also, it's interesting. I don't know if how many of y'all have seen the movie uh, Cabin in the Woods. Uh, you know, I saw it a while ago. That's an old movie, right? They were showing it earlier on sci-fi. What's interesting about the movie is that they have, the movie starts out with these young teens and you're watching teenagers. Then they switch to a scene where there's these people in an office and they have all these computers and they have all these um, TV, uh, TVs basically telecasting what these teenagers are doing. The whole time, these people are manipulating these kids so that they can release these demons, they can release these uh, these monsters, these rapists, these everything, all because at the end of the movie they show that they had to do this every year. They had to ritual, ritually, uh, what you would call, sacrifice five people in order to appease what they said were the gods who were once on the earth but are now in the underworld to appease right. them so that they don't come and take over. Now, I remember. The thing is that they how they actually manipulate people, their emotions, their whole, uh, their fears manifest. It's like they study these people to know exactly what their fears were, because that's exactly the actual energy of the person manifested in front of them was exactly their fear. Mm. And they did this throughout the whole movie. So when you go back, watch that movie, it has a lot of occult and spiritual sciences behind it that people need to really study and understand today exactly what they're doing today with all the protesting, marching, rioting, all the uh, police brutality, police murders of killing people over. You can see in that movie exactly what they're doing. The biggest fear people have is death. I don't give a damn what anybody says. You're a hardcore thug. Everybody fears to die. And people will say, well, no. Somebody will say, well, I'm a thug. I ain't afraid to die. Yes, you are. Because you're killing somebody before they kill you. So that means you're afraid to die. That's, That's right. killing them. And, 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 because you're trying to protect yourself from death. Otherwise, you, right. you would just say, shoot me, kill me. I ain't afraid. But you're not. You actually are afraid to die. So this is what people's biggest fear is, death. And because that's manifested in people's subconscious is the fear of death that's been placed in us from our parents, 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 all the way back through media, through television, through movies. They know exactly how to manifest your fears. And when we see people being shot in mass around the United States, it manifests our fears. And as you said earlier, we start to protest fighting against, as one of your brothers said earlier, fighting against not dying. Right. So in other words, we're fighting or protesting or marching against stop killing us. Which that's means right. you actually think that you can be killed and that's the end of you. But if people really knew the science of protecting yourself through psychic self-defense, you would never let them in the door to hurt you like that. What I mean, I'm not saying you're not going to get shot or killed. You can't get killed. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you can you can actually curtail that from taking hold and affecting you in such a way that it becomes a mass scale because the fear is in people's mind now. And because the fear is in people's mind, you actually make it happen. 
what what that old quote says, what you resist persists. We're resisting dying. What I mean by that is you I'm not saying you should readily give up yourself to death. What I'm saying is we're resisting, we're fighting against death. So death constantly will manifest itself over and over because that energy is being increased by our fears. We're feeding our energy to that fear so it increases itself and finds new ways to manifest to keep our fears alive. That's right. When you look at this movie, it actually shows you these things they do. That's why people don't realize that one of the biggest studies you could do is horror movies. Horror movies are the best way you can learn to actually see what is being done to society. Because people are so scared of horror movies, they go for entertainment. Right. And watch what they're showing you in horror movies. You can actually see more than in other movies what they're actually trying to do, what they're actually controlling people by, and you can actually look behind that and see the whole effect taking place. So right. go and watch that movie for whoever's listening, whoever's watching. Watch that movie, Cabin in the Woods, and you will understand how they can easily manipulate people through your fears. And this is why psychic self-defense and working your subconscious mind, deprogramming, reprogramming is essential because you have to face your fears. That's right. So there's a, um, in the Temple of Sekhmet, which a lot of people don't notice, but through in-depth research I found that in the Temple of Sekhmet, you could not be initiated in a temple unless you faced and overcame all your fears. You couldn't even cross the threshold into initiation until you had overcome your fears before initiation. Right. And they made you face your fears through pre-trials or pre-initiation in that temple of Sekhmet. Sekhmet was no damn joke. That was That's like the, 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 the destructive force of the Netaru, which in India would be Kali, which is the destructive force, which is really destroying your ego, your lower self, or your demons or your your lower energies and you have to overcome these things so people don't realize that when you see these horror movies they're programming you to keep those fears alive that's right the more you keep those fears alive the more they can get in and find how to control you here's an example and then i'm done i see every riot takes place you interview people during these riots. You ever notice that people are being interviewed? This is kind of funny. It's so violent and they're writing everything. How the hell reporters are interviewing people? That's first the first thing to think about. Second, That's right. They interview you, and they always find the stupidest ass person for you. Have you ever that? It's always the dumbest person that responds. Oh yeah, man. You know, uh, and you're like, what? But what they're doing is that they're sh- when they interview people and they are listening to us, they're finding out what your fears are while the That's actual right. event is taking place. They're finding right. out how this is actually working on the psyche of those people at that event because they're learning how to make this more effective. Now, what's the funniest thing is, at the same time, you got to love our people, though. But anyways, at the same this dude is being interviewed by CNN, and he sh- he gives a shout-out to his own mixtape. Now, that was some hilarious <laughs> shit, dude. 
Yeah, that's Boudreaux from up the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah, by the way, check out my mixtape. So, oh, shit. Nigga had to plug in. It just shows you the programming <laughs> of our minds that in the midst of this event that's taking place, we will still find a way to shout out our mixtape. Now, <laughs> if that's not some serious programming, I don't know what is. <laughs> Yeah, but hey, it's funny. It's funny you bring it up. It's, uh, something else I wanted to pass on. This is it's good. that movie, like you said, uh, uh, Kevin in the Woods. Um, again, it's like we've been saying on the show. It, if if they can control your emotions, they can control you to do anything you want. And that's the key here. And we we got to come to the realization. We don't just say this stuff to sound sound heavy. Yeah, look within yourself, and you got to meditate. And all. We're not saying that shit because it sounds metaphysical or spiritual. You have to actually apply these principles because you, I watched today, uh, you might have seen this movie, I think it came out about six months to a year ago, The Babadook. I don't know if anybody saw that movie. Fucking crazy as shit because what the movie's about, let me show you, this is dealing with imagination and the mind. And I'm watching this shit and I'm looking at it from a metaphysical perspective. I'm not looking at this. Because like, like, like my brother's saying, if you watch these movies and you break down the essence of them, you can kind of see the messages subliminally they're really trying to convey, not, not the message on the surface where they're trying to instill fear in you and, and work on your subconscious. Um, this movie, if you haven't seen it, some of you might have seen it. This movie is about this little kid that gets this book. It's called The Babadook, okay? It's about this fictional character that comes for the soul of people. And you'll see the imagery in the book. You've got to pay attention to the imagery in the book, the character, how he's dressed, the type of hat he's wearing. I won't get into the whole thing now because we'll be here forever. Go see the movie. I just want to give you overall what the message is. Now, he sees this, obviously, because, you know, they say the younger the kids are, when they haven't been as diluted or programmed, their imagination is stronger and they can see into the spiritual realm. So this character in the book becomes a reality. At first, the mother is resisting it, telling him, he's, he's, she, you're not seeing this, it's all made up. Now, instead of the character going into the kid, it goes to the one that doesn't believe. Now, you got there's a science behind that. It's the one that's shooting it down is the one that's used as the vessel to be used to come through because that person's aura is weaker their spirituality isn't strong, so they're an open vessel for walk-ins. The movie shows you that. It clearly depicts it. Now, here's the fucked up part about it. After she starts realizing that this might be true, the mother, she's still kind of in denial. Uh, I, mean, I want you to see the end because there's a more of a connection with it with the kid's father, but I, ain't gonna, I don't want to give you that whole thing now. I want you to watch it. She takes the book, and she burns it, and she destroys it, Okay. Then the next day, the Babadook is the sound somebody makes when they knock on the door. That's what this, that's what this spirit does when it comes. It makes this Babadook sound. You'll see it when you watch the movie. It's fucking ingenious, whoever thought of this shit. So she hears that sound on the door. She opens the door, and somebody places the book there. But they change the imagery in the book, and now she's in the book, and now it's showing her becoming weak, and she shows her going out of her mind and, and carrying out certain acts. I don't want to ruin the rest of it for you, but the whole point is, is this. It goes to show you how they can feed off your emotions and your imagination because the kid, and I'm using, here's, here's the message you got to get from the movie. We as adults have been programmed. We've been infiltrated with so much bullshit. 
we've been given so much misinformation over the years. And some of us, regardless of where we are in our spirituality now, we're still, we still have to get some of that out of our subconscious. We're still dealing with it. Even regardless of how far you might think you are in your spiritual journey, we still deal with it on a subconscious level, okay? And the message was to show you the, the, the kid who, whose imagination was pure, who hadn't been as diluted, obviously, of his mother, who's a full-grown adult, who was in denial. This is the, I, I compared the two. I said that would be the person that is deep in their inner alchemy, the kid, and the mother would be the one who's the one that's reactive out here in the world who was, even though she could see it smack clear as day in front of us, she just, she just didn't want to face the reality that that's what was going on. Because what was originally thought of as an imagination of a fairy tale actually came to life because the kid whose energy was stronger, he, he actually brought it to life. It was actually a fictitious book. But anyway, go, go see the movie again to show the power of self. We have that power within us. We have that same ability. So when we say on, when we're talking on the show, for an example, when we're talking about the different Egyptian deities and we're saying the archetypes and they tie into your chakras and their energy centers that you can contact, we're not just saying that shit to sound, oh, that sounds heavy. You have to learn to actually contact that Osiris energy or Osir energy. You have to learn to contact that Kanum or that Patar energy. You have to learn the sciences to connect it because that is the energy, the cosmic consciousness, the divine intelligence, whatever term, whatever, whatever uh, title you need to give it, that's what we have to connect with because that's going to be our salvation. That's what's going to make all this stuff that's going on around us obsolete. Now, think of this. There's something else I want to pass on to you that Dr. Blair has shared. One thing he said yesterday, obviously one phrase he likes to use all the time is, we're living in strange times. We're living in strange times. And people, he said, whose, whose pineal glands are calcified. Here's something to, to, really, to really take into consideration. They know, based, he said, we're roving satellites, and we know we carry these cell phones everywhere we go. They can send imagery to us subconsciously. And, and you heard him even talk about when he was on our show, like he said, if you go to Google, you Google something, boom, type it in, it downloads it, it contacted you because you were the roving satellite. Now, I want you to keep that in your mind because if they can do that, they can obviously, for weak individuals, program you subconsciously with images and information. So that's definitely 100% true. Now, like you said, through that same process, they know what you like to eat. They can, they can um, feed off your thinking patterns. They know the places that you visit. They know the movies and the TVs and the programs and the shows you like, obviously, because they can research all your history that you, that you when you're Googling and you're researching and, and your TV's emitting these, these radiation waves that they can tap into. So here's the thing. They can constantly study you and break you down as far as what food you like to eat, how you like to dress, the whole nine. We can go through the whole list. And he said the more your, cal your, your um, pineal gland is, is calcified, it's easier to tap into your subconscious. That's important to understand because there is the answer to the solution to how we can protect ourselves. If we are opening ourselves up spiritually with all these sciences that we're talking about on the show, working with the Kundalini, working with the Chi, whatever, whatever term you want to use, working with the higher sciences, practicing the magic, doing the rituals to connect with our ancestors is going to obviously decalcify our pineal glands and open us up to a, a, a universe full of knowledge and information and 
magical forces. And I say I'm only using that word loosely because it's a term people can identify with. Open us up to the correct energy. That's the solution. Fuck all this other shit people are talking about. There ain't going to be no war. There ain't going to be no blacks and whites fighting each other. Nation of Islam's out of their goddamn mind. That shit ain't happening. We're ready to spell that myth a million times on the show. So if you think you're going to rely on your blackness to save you, then you're stupider than I thought. Because if you really think you're going to go up against this, this beast who's a killer by nature, who can come into any, any one of our cities right now with army tanks and wipe it out in the blink of an eye, don't sell me that, that pie-in-the-sky bullshit because that's not a reality. But if we connect with our inner alchemy, our magical forces that exist within our DNA, that's a reality. There's a difference. Um, let's bring in Brother Saw real quick because I know you haven't been in on a while. Actually, before we do that, we got, we got one more person on the phone. Let's see if we can bring them in real quick. Hold on one second. Um, Southeast Florida, Monroe County, you're on the call. Can you hear me? Hello? Southeast Florida, you're on the call. Can you hear me? All right, maybe they're just listening. Are you there? Can you hear me? Let's try one more time. I hear some static, but I'm not sure what's going on. Southeast Florida, Monroe County, you're on the call. Can you hear me? I can hear some noise, but I don't know if they can hear me. All right, we'll go back to our brother, Sar. Go ahead, brother, Sar. What's your thoughts on what we've been talking about? You're breaking up a little bit. Can you speak up? Can you hear me or something? Taking the shit, brother. <laughs> you dropping the deuce? You dropping the deuce? All right. Anyway, we'll see. We, we we'll see if we can get him back on. He might have stepped away. He might have went and um, joined the Black Hebrew Israelites or something. Yeah, that's what he did. <laughs> anyway, but we'll, we got about. We're gonna stay on for about another ten, fifteen minutes. Um, uh, but again, I just think these are key points. The, the last thing. This is the other thing about the Baltimore riots. Uh, and again, it's just popping in my head as we're talking about it that uh, Dr. Blair had passed on. The Bloods and Crips in that march united. They didn't tell you that shit on the news either. If the brother that was there, the ones that started the, the rally, the protest, the peaceful march three miles outside of downtown, yes, you heard me say it correct, the Bloods and the Crips. Now, think about if they promoted that shit on the news. Just think about the impact that would have had worldwide on Bloods and Crips all over the world. Think about the shit for a minute. Now, that right there is a key element because... If that shit would have spread wide world, just think, the worst thing that could happen is Bloods and Crips coming together. Because if, them, if they were more busy on using their power to, to build instead of de- destroy it, that would be a powerful force. Because that right there is a scary thought. Now, the news don't want to report that because of that simple fact, because that information would spread everywhere. And the brother made that clear. That's what set it off, because they were getting frightened because the Bloods and Crips had called a truce in Baltimore and got together, and they were the ones, I want to make that clear, that started that peaceful protest that turned violent and sparked the riots. So now you see the hidden agenda. Now look at it now from a whole nother perspective. Now let's look at this shit from a whole nother perspective. Think about the power in that. Let me see. So are you there? Are you still taking a shit, brother? I do. He, he... Anyway, go ahead, brother. You want to comment on that? 
And it's very difficult to unite with other like-minded people, and only like-minded people can create unity that can thrive and benefit moving forward. Until that happens, it's not going to because if you're if you have like-minded and unlike-minded people in a community, you will always have a split. You will have divisions. You will always have arguments, fights, to the point that you're going to have splits within that organization, and they're going to split and, and break off into multiple little splits. How do I know? From experience. Being a part of these organizations, being a part of these things, I can see that firsthand from the inside out, how it can split eventually to many different little splinter groups, all because the mind is still fracked into different little philosophies and different little issues and core issues and beliefs that we each individual can affect the core eventually. So when you see that unification taking place, that become very dangerous to the masses of people in their concept they see these people as killers when in reality that's not what they are but when they unite and they unite for a greater good then it starts to change the mindset of people little by little all over there's a lot of mental alchemy taking place however if you're controlled by the mass media, all you see is the large negative aspect they want to show you everything. Right. Makes sense. Good point. I think we got Brother Asar back, man. You was taking a deuce, brother? Asar, can you hear us? I think he forgot his phone is on, brother. No, no, no. He logged out. Man. He just got, got back on, so he might be having phone problems. Uh, can you hear us, brother? Sorry. Maybe he ran back at time. Uh, so he might be having phone problems. Uh, but anyway, uh, I think we touched on a, you know, on a good bit. So I think that pretty much sums it up. And again, that's 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 the whole point of what this is about. It's about self, self in the sense, not just saying it again. And I know, you know, some people like just hear that shit. I got to contact myself. No, you have to actually put it into practice, okay? And that's what these shows are about. Again, we will always combine. Like tonight, we dealt more with history and religion. You know, the history and the religion takes it always back. You're going to find anybody we have on here that deals with history and religion is going to connect it to Egypt. And the reason why we're doing that is to show the people, even if you're dealing with it on a lower physical level, you can't avoid the magical aspect of Egypt and the ancestors and dealing with that spiritual alchemy. It's there. You just need to see it. So it doesn't matter if you're dealing with it on a lower level. You just need to come to the realization and take it to that next level because the connection is there. You just need to see it, okay? Um, I think that covers it for the evening. And, again, just a, a quick reminder. Uh, Next week, where we'll be on Wednesday night, the next two weeks are going to be a little bit out of whack. We'll be on Wednesday night, 10 p.m., which is May 6th, Wednesday. Uh, we're going to have the sister Vera Courtney on. Uh, you can look up her book. It's called Unmasking the Magicians. You can get it on Amazon. Um, I encourage everybody to come out and support this young sister. Um, it's, it's rare we get somebody that 
at, at an early age wants to go into that, you know, uh, field. And when I say early, I'm not saying she's super young, but, you know, we, we get a lot of these elders on. They're up in their 50s and 60s. We're talking about somebody in the 20s and, and, and 30s that are starting out young and, 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 you know, putting out work to teach us about our ancestors. Now, her book deals with alchemy, and, and she deals heavy with, uh, you know who the uh, you know who the Sumerians were. She gets into a lot of Sumerian culture, um, so we'll be talking about a lot of that stuff next week. Um, and she deals a lot with ancestral worship, uh, spiritual altars, things of that nature. So that's kind of going to be you know what the topic will be next week. Again, if you want to Google the book, the book will give you an insight of uh, what what she deals with. Uh, so she'll be our special guest next week. Then the fifteenth, we're going to bring you a raw dog show. Not for the weak-hearted. It's going to be us doing it, uh, and we're kind of going to get you know if you if you're soft and and your feelings get hurt easy, you don't want to tune into that show because we usually give you reality checks when it's just us. Um, and then we'll follow that up on the 21st. Dr. Jewel Pulkram will be here with us, and again I kind of equate her to on the level of Dr. Edward Bruce Bynum. Actually, Dr. Bynum will be back in June when he comes back from vacation. I actually spoke to him like three days ago. Um, he wants to come back on sometime in the middle of June, so we'll get, get him back on and keep keep continuing his book because I think he's got one of the best books out there right now, period. Um, so we'll definitely get him back on. Uh, that's pretty much it for now, so we'll see you again. I'll send out the emails. I'll send out the text. If you're on the invite list, it automatically gets generated to you. If you are listening to the show and you're on Twitter or you're on Facebook, um, you listen to the live stream, if you want to automatically be put on that list, just go to the to the, to the um, TalkShoe.com page, come to our page, Awaken of Universal Minds. There's a follow button at the top. You can hit the follow, and you can type in your email address. That'll put you on the list. So, again, if you want to be put on that list, just go to the top of our page on TalkShoe, hit the follow button, type in your email. That automatically puts you on the list. It'll generate an email for any upcoming shows or any time we send out an email, you'll automatically get it. To me, that's the best way to stay in tune with the show and what's going on. If you put yourself on that follow list, it just keeps easy to keep up with it. Uh, so, again, next Wednesday, we will be on 10 p.m. There will be no Thursday show next week. It will be next Wednesday only, a one-time Wednesday show, 10 p.m. Uh, and that's about it. Everybody have a good night, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>